Yo, we are back with the weirdest show in Northern Ireland. <laughs> the subset of Best of Belfast, the subset of the Causeway Living podcast. Awesome collaboration with my main man, Scott Riley, where we catch up once a month and literally talk about the weirdest and most wonderful things. Very, very different from the usual flavor of our show. Uh, on Best of Belfast, where we usually are interviewing interesting people from Northern Ireland. We've got 240 episodes under the belt. If this is your first time, you may want to start somewhere else because this is super weird. If you're a long-time listener of the show, you may want to skip this because it gets really freaky and esoteric. But we put a trial episode out a couple of months ago, and the response was insanely good. I've never had more people reach out to thank us for a show and say, we want more. So please welcome to your ears the wonderful Scott Riley. You can check him out online. Uh, his business name is Causeway Living, also the name of his podcast. We've done, is it three episodes now with Scott in the past? All around wellness and mental health and well-being, cold water therapy, the importance of exercise, nutrition. It's all there. If you dive deep into the archives, you will find it. Seek and you shall find. And... That's all I have to say. There's no way that you can be prepped for what you're about to hear. So let's just go. One minute, 53 seconds. I'm going to do it in two minutes. Thank you for being here. And I really hope that you enjoy. Bang. Um, my thermometer this morning in the wheelie bin was five degrees. Five? It was cold. That's colder than the sea. That's as cold as the sea ever gets here. Is that? So I don't actually know. What's the bottom temperature of the sea? it's about five or six and I've seen people in like local swim groups like take thermometers in and say like oh it was two degrees today I reckon dodgy thermometer <laughs> <laughs> there's no way um, but I actually yeah. I didn't think it dropped below like I thought it was like maybe like eight or something but five is very cold yeah you know what I might even be pushing it it might be like six seven to be honest and then at it's like height maybe 14 15 yeah I'd love to see what, like, Blue Lock or Glenu Waterfall. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see, like, what they get down to in their, like, the depths of winter. Really, really fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> And I think that, well, but does Blue Lock freeze over? Can it freeze? I would imagine 100%. Like, I mean, because it's just... It's just warm. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> like, the coldest you're ever going to get with that sort of thing is probably, like, in the Glen River because you'll have snow melt coming down. Mm. So it'll probably be basically, like, very, very little above zero. Wow. Just enough to get it moving. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, that's why I'm afraid. I want to do it. I, we Like, I'm going to say now, we will do it. I'm afraid. I really want to do, like, February, Lino Waterfall because, like, the water moves, it can't freeze. And so I'm just thinking like, how cold can it get? <laughs> <laughs> See, the interesting thing is like, if you're, you can do five degrees. Yeah. Physiologically, like the response in your body isn't all that different. It's just a bit colder, but your mm. body knows how to do it already. Yeah. Is there like, uh, do you know off the top of your head, like even roughly or even from your own experience, is there like a 
like temperature or like a coldness where it's like, see, to go beyond this, you don't really get any more benefit. Yeah, it's very different for each person and it depends on their physiology and it's more to do with like time spent in there. So like mm. anyone can get into, I mean, eventually water freezes and then, you know, you can't get into <laughs> pure ice. <laughs> yeah. But like anything above that where it's still actually in its liquid state, like get into it, no problem. But so like anyone could get into that for like five or six seconds and get yeah, out and be yeah, like, yeah, no yeah. bother. But if you were to stay in that, I mean, like even a polar bear will freeze to death if it stays in the water for too long. Wow. So like that's one thing that's really uh, a challenge like in teaching the Wim Hof method and the cold water stuff, especially with the Wim Hof method specifically, I think a lot of people start to let ego creep into it and like, mm -hmm. oh, I did the cold water for like 10 minutes today or yeah, I did yeah, it like yeah. for 15 minutes today. And one of the biggest things that they try to get across to you in the Wim Hof Academy and, you know, part of becoming an actual certified instructor is like you never, you don't time it. The only time that you do time it is like maybe the first time someone's getting in an ice bath and then there's like an upper limit of two minutes because basically impossible to get hypothermia like in a couple yeah, of yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then like as this stuff becomes more popular, like I'm hearing stories of people doing like health and well-being workshops and stuff like just random yoga teachers or just random dude who's watched Wim Hof online yeah. being like, let's get into the cold water 20 minutes. And oh my goodness. I'm like, damn. It's like the CrossFit mentality to cold water. You're like, no, 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 this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> no. And it's actually like fully dangerous, you know, yeah. and it's because it's like such a new, like cool thing. It is. It's in. It is. Yeah. And I'm sure like there's probably this sort of thing with say like yoga as well where you can go and get like a yoga certification or something like that in a oh, weekend <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and then you've got like some guy or girl who doesn't know what they're doing like trying to get people into headstands or something and not taking into account like all the things that you probably learn in like a, a genuine teacher training program so. yeah yeah yeah, yeah oh, something i'd love to talk to you about sometime is like this idea, I, I, I've, I just have like a feeling it could be Buddhist. It's kind of like whenever you read a quote on the internet and you're like, they're like, we're not sure who said this, but it was probably Abraham Lincoln or probably Albert Einstein or like who wrote Huck Finn, um, Mark Twain. You know, like people just have like a certain flavor. You're like, that kind of sounds like, you know, Newton probably said that. Uh, this idea of like the shortest way is the longest way and there's no shortcuts. And actually the fastest way to get somewhere is to take the longest road. And I like, I honestly, we could do a whole episode on that because I think about that all the time. And in my own lived experience, I find it to be so true. But back to what you said about the timing, I've got there accidentally in a different way. I've stopped timing my runs mm. for that very reason because I'm trying to actually enjoy the process of running rather than hit some sort of milestone or like a metric and I find like the tracking and the like the over dataization <laughs> of like our lives. I think like there's something to be said about tracking some things, mm. but I think there's like there's a shadow side of over tracking that can actually take you out of the moment or take you out of actually enjoying the thing, the very thing you're tracking. There's like I have it in a different book. There's a quote, and it's like when something becomes a metric it ceases to be a metric or something like that mm. like when you start tracking something it no longer is like 
a prop it's like no longer a helpful measurable hmm, because yeah. then you're just focused on the actual metric rather than maybe the meaning behind it or something it's like sort of like that observer effect thing like whenever you start to observe something it changes the thing so it no longer becomes the thing anymore <laughs> or mm. like you can't like as soon as the observer comes into it then it changes the thing wow so awareness anthony DeMello. i he's like I, I go i like i don't even want to tell you this yet oh, i'll just tell you there's an audiobook version do you know that no i did not know okay, that okay so he gives it oh he reads it's it his voice oh great it's like that's a little treat for you when you read the book. Because I think you should read the book first. Yeah, 100%. Because he brings something totally different to it. Hmm. Uh, you know, he's got this amazing Indian accent and, like, his voice is so lovely. And, like, it's my, it's my like, if I'm really struggling to get to sleep, it's my go-to. Like, 15 oh. minutes sends me right over. But one of the ones I was listening to the other day, and he said, whenever we tell a child what a sparrow is, they never see the bird anymore. They just see the sparrow. Hmm. And he says, from now on, the child won't notice and observe and really take in the intricacy and the beauty of the bird. They'll be like, oh, it's just a sparrow. I know what that is. You know, it, it's like categorized and it's lost all mystery to it. And that's kind of interesting too. I had a really interesting conversation today um, with my friend Kat. And it was kind of around that idea where... Like everything is a miracle, but we just get so used to it that we just completely take it for granted. Like yeah. every blade of grass, the fact that we're sitting here, just literally everything, like the most redundant thing, the seemingly redundant thing is an absolute miracle. And I feel like like where that conversation with my friend went earlier was talking about the the like stereotypical hippie right mm. and you think like the hippie tripped out on some psychedelic drug and he's like looking at like i don't know like a cup or something like whoa bro <laughs> <laughs> look at this tiny bowl man <laughs> right <laughs> but yes that hundred yeah. a million percent he's on it yeah he's got it and he's not some dumb hippie he's like wise hippie yeah how insane like yeah i kind of have this thing I i'm not like I'm not au fait with the world of psychedelics. Like, I know, like, like it's having a very strong moment right now, and I know you have a lot of experience with it. But for me, from a purely outsider's perspective, the appeal that I see of psychedelics is connected to returning to a state of being like a child. Mm -hmm. Because I look at, like, my daughter is, you know, she's coming up to a year and a half. And like the one, she is the wise hippie. Yeah. Like she's the one like looking at a fork and just like playing with a fork for two hours. Yeah. And like being totally amazed by that. And for me, I'm just like, when I think about what I think psychedelic experiences would be like or why people are so drawn to them, in my head, it's like, it's going back to that two-year-old place again that is just so amazed and curious and childlike. That is so far removed from the adult world, you know. It 100% is a childlike experience. And it's so interesting because I feel like that's really seeped into me. Like mm. whenever I 
look back at all the workshops that I've done in the past and facilitated and held and all the different things, it's basically getting people to act like kids for like four <laughs> hours and then just justifying it with like, and here's the science. <laughs> but it's basically just getting to people to like clamber over rocks and get in and out of pools and have a laugh together yeah. and talk yeah. openly. Oh, dude, like we talked before, like, you know, watching young kids playing in the sea. Mm-hmm. You know, and here I am like doing deep breath work before I jump in and they're just like, whoa, and they're like splashing and they're like naked and you're like, you guys are hard as hell. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like it's, it's a strange word to use, but it feels like it's a sin what happens to people to lose that innocence. You know, like I, the thing that is a common theme amongst all my best friends is that childlike nature. Mm-hmm. It's the people who are content to like go out for a walk and be like, uh, look at that weird mushroom at this time of year that's growing out of the ground or uh, that cloud looks like a whale or something like that. And like not the person who's who's lost that innocence. And it's not a judgment on the person who has, like we, we've talked about before, like life um, and modern society is oriented to like yeah. weed that out of people but um, for those who manage to hold on to that in spite of everything it's just special humans yeah and I think like the most special types of old people that you meet like 80 and up yeah are the ones that have somehow returned to that childlike state. And I'm not talking about like dementia or Parkinson or something like that. I mean, like these are wise ass, hard as nails, like men and women who they literally, they're with the great granddaughter and they are just a child themselves, you know? And there's like a Roald Dahl quote and he says something like, uh, even the wisest of men enjoy the silliest of times, yeah. like the best of times or something like that. Like this idea that like, it's incredibly wise to be silly, you know, and embrace that like childlikeness in yourself as well. If I think of any great teacher in my life, they've all had that as well. They've all liked to laugh. They've all been a bit silly. Mm. They've all been a bit mischievous as well. And yeah, children yeah, are yeah. mischievous. Are too. we a bit impy? Like that sort of vibe. Yeah. I love that in people. That's something I really, I'm really attracted to is that like impishness. Yeah. It's yeah. fun as well. So fun. Yeah. Like life should be fun. Yeah. And even to, you know, <sighs> What we're going to talk about today is like, there's a lot of that embodied in, you know, as well. Like yeah. at the start of the movie, the the fun impishness of Moses. Yeah. Oh, bro. It's so good, isn't it? So <laughs> good. <laughs> like, oh man, like on, you know, the, to to explain like on the walk here that we were just like holding this in. Bro. Yeah. So like, I like park my car and I'm like. I jumped out in Scott just so happened to be like walking past and like it it was like 10 minutes of us like don't talk about the Prince of Egypt we really want to talk about it but don't talk about it don't talk about it don't talk about it <laughs> so good like so many moments of like and this bit no 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 wait <laughs> <laughs> and what did you think about no 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 let me hold it in let me hold it in let me finish the loop before we jump mm. so two things and they're actually they're biblical that's why I bring them up there's a really interesting thing where something Jesus says, where he's like, unless you become like a child, you will never see the kingdom of God. 
<sighs> so good. So that just I'll put a pin in that. And then I was producing a show the other day for Mark Dowds, and he was interviewing Foy Vance. And Foy said something wild. Like it just slipped it in at the very end of the podcast. And he was like, um, he's like, you know, I'm not really a religious man, actually, like far from it. But like we were talking about it, our, his kids. We were like, what is your, what is your, what have your kids taught you about life? Like something amazing, amazingly esoteric like that. Yeah. And he goes, you know, when I think about my kids, like I think about like that scripture. And he talked about like the child laying the lion down. I think it's like a, a, like a prophecy in Revelation or something. And he said like, you know, this idea of the child like taking the lion by the hand and laying it down. And he says like for him, it's the innocence of a child taming the wildness in him and how he has allowed his kids to basically like take him by the hand and still and steady that like the ferocious parts of him and like has turned that lion into like a peaceful beast rather than like something that seeks to destroy. And I was just like, dude, that is just absolutely incredible. That is incredible. It actually makes me think of another like biblical thing, this idea of uh, the meek will inherit the earth. Yeah. And then like the best way I've heard that described before is um, it's those who have a ferocious nature but choose to be meek. Mm -hmm. It's not just the like the inherently meek without that side. Bro, this is going to be, this podcast is crazy, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, uh, do you know what Moses is described as in the book of Deuteronomy? No. It, okay, right. Moses is described, I promise you I'm not BSing you, as the meekest man who's ever lived. Damn. <laughs> and I always remember being like, you know, like, that, like, and something this movie does such a good job of is like the badassery of Moses, like the sheer like, like crazy hard, like tough, like ferocious yeah. nature of this guy mixed with this like unbelievable brokenness and tenderness and like burden. And that's, I think that's what meekness is. Yeah. It's, it's what you said. It's like, it's the, it's the peaceful lion. Yeah. It's the thing that could like tear your arm off in a second but chooses like that kind of like softer path and that then there's like a quiet strength in that it's crazy yeah and i think that is often really like misunderstood as in like people wanting to be nice but mm. if you do not have the capacity to be anything other than nice yeah then it's just it's not a choice one and two it's just this like is it really being nice if it's not a choice if it's just like some survival strategy of like yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I'll just like make myself yeah. small uh, that's actually a re I, I've never done any martial arts it's mm. actually something I would love to do in the future although we've talked about getting older and how like you don't want to like you know your body's just not really built like for like getting battered the same way like your 12 year old body is um, and again I would like a, a show I was producing the other day the woman had spent time in like a really serious boxing gym in Thailand like a really elite sort of one and she talked about the trainers and she says like these were guys that are like chain smokers like hard as nails like look like they're literally ripped out of like a Quentin Tarantino movie Yeah. and she said like they are the most dangerous men she's ever met and she had this amazing quote she says you know they're these guys with just like murderous hands yeah. but gentle spirits <laughs> 
And I think like there's something about, I think the benefit of like doing a martial art or being proficient in like protecting yourself or being strong physically or whatever is it gives you that ability to walk into a room and you can be incredibly strong, but you choose peace. Yeah. You know, you choose meekness. And I just think there's something so like tantalizing about that like type of strength, that quiet strength that is so the opposite of like the bravado guy in the pub, you know, yeah. who's like puffed out his chest, but that's his coping mechanism because he's terrified versus mm-hmm. like the very quiet, confident person. I just think it's so cool. Yeah, I think of like the the most, um, the highest level mixed martial artist that I've ever met. Like I've been fortunate to spend a bit of time with Ian McCall, who's a fighter in the UFC. And um, like he, I don't know if I've ever met a nicer human being. Wow. <laughs> he's just like the nicest dude in the world. Yeah, and he's like, <laughs> he like rips people's arms off for a living. He, he is that lion, you know, he's crazy. Yeah, and you know, back to this point, like chooses to be meek and what a, a powerful thing so like yeah. i mean just fast and like you said moses like he had like the shadow in that man like in the story uh, wild right dude let's go are you ready <sighs> i think so <laughs> prince of egypt mm. 1998 like i was at granny's yesterday actually with eliana the the daughter and uh, we picked up this little ornament and like we flipped it over and it had like a handwritten label on it that says 1998. Mm. And it's a very ordinary ornament. And it just hit me like, dude, the same year someone was making this ornament, all these people were making this crazy, crazy, crazy movie. Like I think about like before like the 2000s and I'm like, you know, like I, I think of it as like so primitive. <laughs> yeah, like I do. Like, yeah. And then I'm like, wait, the Matrix made then? Or like Lord of the Rings was made then? I'm like, whoa, there, that, that was amazing they were able to do that. And like this is on the surface like a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's a cartoon, but like it is a cartoon unlike anything I've ever seen before. There was a total of 350 people working on the film mm-hmm. across 34 different countries. And the budget was 70 million. Damn. Which, like, I mean, for, like, a, a quote-unquote kids movie is is pretty crazy at that time. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's the former head of Disney, he, like, was dying to make this movie when he worked for Walt Disney. Hmm. And they were like, no, you can't do it, no, you can't do it, no, you can't do it. And then so, like, when he left and went to DreamWorks, like, this was his big, his big thing. Hmm. But, like, you know, how many nominations did it get? It got... 27 nominations and it won one Oscar I think for the soundtrack which let's be of course (laughs) (laughs) and that's the thing as well it's a musical yeah we what we like so we talked about the Prince of Egypt in our last episode like I don't know even know I don't even know how it came up but it was like literally like a three minute bit and then we were thinking about what should our next episode be and I was like dude let's just let's just watch the Prince of Egypt and see what happens what did you know about it or think about it or like expect before you jumped into it? Very little, to be honest. But one, the fact that it was on your recommendation, I thought like, this is bound to be weird and awesome. So <laughs> <laughs> just like you. <laughs> um, also as well by chance in the past three weeks or so is the first time 
in that I like I can remember that I've watched several animated feature films. Oh, so this Unusual. is a weird thing to wow. like come up. Um, so I'm in a relatively new relationship, and yeah, yeah. Um, Holly has a big big Disney fan. So awesome, yeah. So I'm not a big movie buff in general, like not move like any movies really like i love a good story uh so things like the matrix or whatever like what a story mm. you know um so it's not as if like i just not into movies just very fussy and not really one to like waste my time on something that's not sure awesome yeah um and having watched a few animated feature films recently realized like actually i might be be potentially way more open to watching this sort of film than like random Hollywood blockbuster thing because a lot of kids movies are based on these like old archetypal story structures there's generally like a really solid moral to them Mm -hmm. as well and uh, I love watching them through that lens because there's like there's so many layers to a kids movie yeah and yeah, just the fact that you should suggest this in this time in my life where this is already <laughs> things like, well, guess this is uh, <laughs> that's really thing. I've never actually thought about it like that the way you you just laid that out there. It's kind of like the closest thing we have to like an oral tradition, mm. and what I mean by that is like stories that are passed down for purpose, like to communicate meaning rather than just like, dude, did you see this awesome? artsy like revelationary film mm. that doesn't really mean anything like it's quite abstract but it's it's very enjoyable if you are a movie buff and i think like what really struck me i mean there's so many things we're gonna talk about today but like with other kids movies like the economy of the script mm. that they work with that is something like as someone who's like really got into writing over the last mm. five years like I'm shocked at like how short this movie is. Mm. Like it's like 90 minutes. Great. <laughs> like I just, I watched June like last week and it was like three hours and I watched uh, No Time to Die, a new James Bond movie. It was like three hours. And I was like, dude, what this movie has done in 90 minutes is shell shocking. <laughs> and like the script is so tight and their dialogue and everything they do is just so... It's like watching like a surgeon cut somebody open. It's so precise. Mm. Like, and every aspect of it is just so, so cool. The other funny little kind of like thread in between that is the last three movies I've seen have all been scored by Hans Zimmer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. But you're right though. It's so concise. There's no filler. No filler at all. There's no bit where you're like, right, okay, just, you know. Yeah, get on with it. And that's great. And like, I understand that because it has to be like for a kid's attention span and stuff. Mm. Like great, no fanny and about basically. Yeah, like yeah, get yeah. to all this real quality. Um, also as well, like visually awesome too. You know, like kids. Um, so just as I said there, like there's so many levels and layers that this could be enjoyed on, but mm. like it has to be visually appealing as yeah. well for the really young kids who really aren't like on a conscious level at all yeah, get yeah, yeah. the deeper stuff yeah. just has to be visually entertaining totally. and it really was as well yeah so 
let's just go. Like I don't know how I don't know how else to get in this, but let's just let's just jump in. Opening scene, first song. Tell me about it. Yeah, right. Well, it like it does start to set the the scene basically like, you know going into like, heavy stuff yeah like slavery straight straight away. Away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think the first word like I think the first word is like mud or something like that <laughs> yeah and it's like the, this like Hebrew guy just like hauling mud in the dirt you yeah. know yeah, and like then there's a really nice like juxtaposition there between the like lowly Hebrew like slaves and their like uh like quote unquote evil Egyptian yeah, yeah, yeah. like overlords. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the, like it really um I guess it starts to like characterize like a good guy, bad guy and sets out uh um yeah, it becomes a bit more black and white and yeah. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily because it's a kid's movie and, like, you know, that's the that's the good versus evil is, like, the big, you yeah. know, the big trope. I don't know if that's why it necessarily sets it out in that way. And it's not as if I've read the biblical story either. I don't know if it's presented in, in a way like that, but... Um, yeah, it certainly gets that communication across pretty yeah, clearly at the very, start. Very, clear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, like, it's funny, like, even, like, <clears throat> visually, like, if you look at the character design of the Egyptians versus, like, the Hebrews, like, the features of the Egyptians are, like, they're very skinny mm. and they're very, like, pointed and, like, very defined jaws and, like, pointy noses and, like, mm. slender and long and, like, real spindly sort of fingers, whereas, like, the Hebrews are a lot more, like like your granny cooking a big pot of stew, <laughs> like much more rounder, like much more fuller, like, and it just softer and like more warmer looking, if you know what I mean. So again, like you said, like from the very beginning, it's made very clear visually, like this is, this is, these are the good guys, quote unquote, and these are the bad guys. Yeah. Um, but I was just like, you know, and I'll say this like 20 times throughout this, this conversation, <laughs> like a kid's movie, mm. like, and it's a you yeah. Like how they were able to keep their U guidance or like their their universal rating is beyond me. Mm. It's like straight away you're dealing with like such big themes, you're dealing with such gritty concepts and just such suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, like you've soldiers running down the streets, like going to like find the babies to kill them. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how this movie starts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, like, I think they do a really good job. Like, I love the male choir. I love, like, the big voice of, like, that collective kind of, like, slave song. Yeah. And then immediately it, like, takes you to, like, this unbelievable figure of, like, Moses' mum. Yeah. And just, I think, you know, like you said, the whole scale and, like, the grandeur of Egypt and this big picture with the slaves. And then it, like, the camera, like, almost pans and zooms. And all of a sudden, you're in, like, a little mud shack of, like, a dwelling of one of those families. And it's their story. And it's his story. It's the mm. baby's story. It's a more human, you know, rather like uh, whenever you take it onto like a personal level, like it's way more relatable than yeah. the big thing. Yeah. And I think like what they've done such a good job of in this opening scene is showing how Moses' story, while it is such a intimate and personal story about the man himself, it is so it is about the bigger picture as well. 
Like it's mm. the, they use the story of the individual to tell the story of the collective. And like even that's what Moses' life is, I think. Like even if you just take this story for what it is in, in the movie form, like it's a story about one man, but the man's story is not about him. Like his life is not really his own. Yeah. Like his life is there basically to serve. And it's a really heavy expectation to put on somebody. I love like there was like the the repetition and like the continuation of like the line deliver us. Yeah. So, like the slaves were like crying out to God, like deliver us. Mm-hmm. And then like the mom was singing to the, the basket. Yeah. Like deliver my son, like to safety. Yeah, yeah. And then like there's this bit like where Moses' sister Miriam like sings like a little prayer to her brother and she's like come back and deliver us too. yeah and you're like bro the layers the <laughs> layers in this opening scene is just bonkers i think you're really onto something with like the personal story of the man but also the the through the story being the big picture as well and this like without going way too off the track to start with it like touches on like probably the biggest themes of like um this it's like a hindu idea of like the soul is god and god is the soul like atman is brahman and brahman is atman you know it's like and whenever you try and put that into words like the words are kind of meaningless like whenever you try and put that idea into mouth noises (laughs) (laughs) but um it also reminds me of uh, a Rumi quote, if I remember this correctly. You're not a drop in the ocean. You're the entire ocean in a drop. Ooh. And it's that same idea, basically. Wow. So, yeah, I find that fascinating. And I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit more in so much like Moses' story, but like Moses' story as a metaphor. Mm. Um. Yeah, yeah, and like even just the fact that it was a musical was kind of trippy in itself. So trippy, it's <laughs> right? so weird. Really, really odd. Um, like the horns and like the trumpet, it's just so big. Like yeah. actually, my favorite bit of the of the movie is this first scene. Hmm. And like I was listening to it, like driving in, or when I was doing when I was doing the dishes earlier, and I was like, bro, this is like a complete story in itself. Hmm. Like it's a hero's journey. It's a mini hero's journey in a big hero's journey story. Like, mm. it's the story of, like, the baby, like, moving from the 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 home to the palace. Yeah. And, like, even the journey that, like, the basket takes. Yeah, right, that so was mental. Tr- <laughs> like, it's so bonkers. Like, yeah. they, they really went for it, you know what I mean? Like, to show how dangerous it was. And, like, it's the first time, like, I haven't seen this movie in 15 years. Like, a lot has changed in my life since I've seen it. And, like, I, I actually was in tears in this opening scene, mm. like, thinking about leaving my daughter. Like when when she puts her baby in the basket, and I thought that was really interesting. That is a little like, I'll, from what I can understand, a lot of the Bible is about like repeating images mm. and like reoccurring themes over and over again. We talked before about like that, like like yeah, um, kind of spiraling Jewish thought pattern, and I kind of almost saw like the the basket as almost like the ark, as in like Noah and the ark. And they put this promise into the ark. The ark goes off on this crazy journey and the result is effectively like some form of like salvation, if that Mm. makes sense. And it's crazy, like it's a bit of a messianic story as well of like the chosen boy, you know, the boy that was born. And like if you look at like 
the Exodus narrative. It's just, it, it's so mysterious. There's like one line that says, like Moses' mom saw that the boy was special and so she hid him from the Egyptians. That's uh-huh. it. And she, she kept him for three months or something uh, before I assume, like, I mean, I've, I've like, Babies are very hard to keep quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there's only so like so so long you can keep them in like the pantry or wherever she kept them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like just to get to the point where as a family you're like we have to get rid of this baby or they're going to kill it. Mm. And like imagine that was your only option. Like imagine you as a father like I'm going to put my baby in the river lagging and just hope that it goes somewhere safe. Like it's beyond like it's it's beyond what you, your mind can even comprehend. Well, like, I feel like one of the biggest themes throughout this is faith over fear. And, like, that's, like, the probably the first big part of that. It's, like, what level of faith must you have to yeah. put your baby in a basket and f- push it down yeah. the river? Yeah. And I think another thing that this kind of, this whole story talks about is, like, the relationship between desperation and faith. Mm, interesting. Like, isn't that weird? Yeah. Like, because one way to look at it is, like, oh, how courageous and, like, full of faith you know, Moses' mom is. But then the other aspect is like, how desperate are you? Like, if that's your only option. And then what's the relationship between like desperation and faith? I don't know. And again, like you think about at the end of the movie where like the Hebrews are like at the sea, mm-hmm. like it's a moment of utter desperation. True, and yes. That's, that's where faith steps in as well. So I don't know. I, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, but that's something I didn't really think about. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, really, it touches on my own life as well because, like, the amount of times where I've told the story of my, like, personal health journey of, like, getting really sick and in particular, like, flying out to Peru and, you know, working with the plant medicines there, which, um, you know, strong hallucinogen in them and, um, you know, the fact that you're in the middle of the Amazon with, like, it conjures up an image of fear like most people and yeah. most people are like you must have been so brave to like go over there on your own <laughs> yeah. and do that it's like no it wasn't it was fucking desperate yeah <laughs> it wasn't brave like bravery is doing something you're scared of yeah. I'm like fucking I'll do anything that was my level of desperation wow. I'll fly to the other side of the world and drink some fucking mud water from a shaman <laughs> to try yeah, yeah, yeah. and get better and trip out on a mat and you know that's and, you know, like the Hebrews standing in the front of the Red Sea, it's like, well, you must have been so brave to go through. Like, there's fucking Egyptians yeah, behind yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. I have no other choice. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, so that is a fascinating uh, thing when it comes to, like, actually, is it faith anymore? Yeah. Is, and then you're just getting into semantics also as well of, like, sure. you know, what do, what do words even mean at this yeah. stage? <laughs> and, like, so you talk about the young child watching this movie who maybe took, doesn't have a great grasp on language or can't conceptualize big themes. Uh, visually, they do something so amazing here. Whenever baby Moses like floats over to, I'm going to call her like Mother Pharaoh. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like what they do with Ramesses and Moses from the very beginning is so amazing. It's so subtle, but like, mo- like the mom's like playing with Ramesses. And by the way, Ramesses means like the child of Ra, who's like the big Egyptian god. And Moses means like pretty much like child of the water. It means like to draw out. And then a lot of like Hebrew scholars have said how like he also then drew the Hebrews out of Egypt and all that sort of stuff. But she's playing in the river with Ramesses. She sees the basket. She picks her son up and puts him to the side. Yeah, that did strike me. And then... 
like she picks the baby up and like little baby Ramsey's like mama mama and like yes. tugging at her dress yeah, yeah. and she's just like not now and I was like whoa from the very beginning they introduced that competitive brother yeah and I just thought that was so subtle but like it just set the whole movie because the next scene I think is the Need for Speed chariot race. <laughs> yes. It's the Tokyo Drift. Like, like absolutely harsh sliding Mario Karting through Egypt on the horses where the two brothers are like racing against each other. Yeah, but it's like, it's really, it's like wholesome as well. Like, you know, it's fun. Oh, so fun. Yeah. But it's like the seeds yes. for me, like the seeds are there. And like they made, a, the filmmakers made a really clear choice. Like this is like, the whole movie is basically a showdown between Ramesses and Moses yeah, or the gods of Egypt and the gods of the Hebrews, mm. you know? And it's amazing how, like, just from the very beginning, they're, like, they're like starting to sew that in. But that, I mean, I was, I, that, speaking about being, like, a child, that chariot scene, like, made me feel very childlike. Yeah. And this is the beauty of, like, <laughs> the animation medium because, mm-hmm. like, there's just ridiculous things happening. Yeah. Like, at one point, they're, like, surfing a tsunami of sand <laughs> and, like, the horses are, like, I'm, like, okay, bro, like, these wheels could not do this <laughs> and they're like literally like like drifting up the sides of walls and stuff and yeah like, dude this is so cool also showed like the complete disregard for like the environment they were in mm. you know like destroying all this stuff that like these slaves literally give their lives to build like the disrespect of like yeah even like pharaoh himself like these dudes just go on just like running amok i love like the constant like relationship they have with like the the Egyptian magicians or like the Egyptian yeah, priests. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're always just like messing <laughs> with them. With them yeah. It's just so fun. You know, it's funny, like we talked at the start about um, a childlike nature and mischievous yeah. and both brothers really had that. They really do, yeah. So that's really interesting. Like they're quite, like they're very likable at this stage. Yeah. You know, they're, they're super likable. Yeah. Bro. And, uh, yeah, to, you know, obviously where the film goes, it's it's pretty nuts. So it is a really good foreshadowing the the mother like choosing Moses and sort of like pushing yeah. Ramses aside. Yeah, and it's interesting because like even like later on, like in some of the other kind of family dynamics in the palace, like it's always Moses and his mum, mm-hmm. and it's always Pharaoh and his son. Yeah. You know, like the, the, there's that weird kind of like thing going on there. So. F- I also the most ridiculous thing was like there was even like a little like upskirt shot of yeah. at one point. <laughs> yes. I was like, could we do that now? Like, is that okay? No way. <laughs> Absolutely. In not. the kids movie, and it's like playing off. It's like, what do they say? It's something just like, how's the view from down there, or something like that. And you're like, bro, this is kind of funny. It says like, oh, you're always looking up at me, and That's it's like what it is. not much of a view or something oh, like that. Man. So so good. So you get there and like. And you you then like they're like told off you know yeah, yeah, yeah. they're like they're seriously they're in big trouble like <laughs> and like again I think they do such a good job of that Pharaoh Ramesses dynamic mm-hmm. where it's like his dad has such a heavy weight like Ramesses by his birthright yeah carries such a heavy responsibility like really a crippling responsibility it's funny like it's not something I really thought about in the movie but like somewhere you could go with this is the idea of like generational trauma basically mm, 100% you know like and it's not just Ramses it's like I can't remember what you call the pharaoh but like and his ancestors and it's just this thing passed down and yeah. like who breaks the fucking chain that literally like the writers went for the juggler they say just like like his like the dad says to his son 
like one weak link in the chain can yeah. destroy a dynasty. Because like uh, Ramesses is like, you know, all of Egypt won't fall because of one little temple. And he, that he turns around and just hits him with that. Yeah. And like, bro. But that's a powerful thing. You know, he says it from the point of view of one weak link can destroy a dynasty. Or, you know, all it takes is one person to like heal fucking, you know, the, the, all their ancestors basically because it stops that fucking trauma passing down the line. Wow. And in some ways, that's what Moses did. Yeah, ultimately. Moses was like kind of the strong link. Yeah. And by Ramesses trying to be so strong, he actually became the weak link. Yeah. Something weird in there. He was just perpetuating the trauma, basically. And, you know, we'll get into what happens to his son later on, I'm sure. But, like, you know, the chain's broken there. I didn't even think about it like that. Jeez Louise. So, did you recognize any voices up until this point? It's so subtle. Like, I, I personally, I don't think you could get it. No, honestly, no. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Mama Pharaoh was Helen Mirren. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. I'm going to hear this. This is the craziest one for me. Uh, Daddy Pharaoh, uh-huh. like the big Pharaoh himself, the, the morning and evening star. Pharaoh speaks. Yeah, I yeah, all yeah. that stuff. He's Patrick Stewart. You know Professor what? X. You know what? I think I could. Did you got hear that? that? Yeah, yeah. Because I think that crossed my mind. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's if any of them. Like I think actually yeah. it did cross my mind. Uh, Moses was not someone I think you, you would know. I don't. I didn't know him. I think his name's Val Kilmer. Oh, um, I know of Val. Do you know Kilmer, of Val? See, like... I, I maybe missed the Val Kilmer, Kilmer train. Um, <laughs> but Ramesses. Any anything for Ramesses? Uh, this one really surprised me. He's like really English sounding, wasn't he? Yeah. So he plays Mallory, like M, in the new James Bond movies, like post-Skyfall. More significantly, he plays the Lord Voldemort himself. Oh, what do you call him? Uh, Uh, His name is... I know who it it is. Ralph... Ralph Fiennes or something? Yeah, that's the one. Ralph Fiennes, yeah. Yeah, wow, okay, interesting. But it's so funny because like at the start you, you we all, like you love Ramsey so much. He's so fun. He's cool. And yeah. then like literally like he turns into Lord Voldemort by, <laughs> by the end of the movie. At the start he's kinda like Harry Potter. Like same with Moses, they're just like the boy who lived, like woo, like living their best life. Yeah. And just like that transformation is terrifying. Yeah, and there's something interesting in that as well. Like, you know, when we're talking about like subtle communications of messages to kids, like to know that um that you like this is something that happens. Like people can start off as a like, carefree and awesome and like end up as uh the big baddie. Yeah. You know, and also as well then maybe to try and have a bit of compassion for the you know, the big bad in your life because like, well, that was just a fucking kid at some stage and that was probably just a carefree young guy at some stage in life, you know, pushed him into being this way and now he's just perpetuating that thing that pushed him into being that way. Yeah. This is, this is, I, I was literally sitting here deciding whether or not I was going to say this on air. Like, this is something that like we, I mean, we, like my friends or group and stuff have been talking about recently and it's pretty controversial, but it's the idea that like, do you really believe that you are incapable of doing something? So, like, the, the scenarios we gave were, like, I, I was with a, a bunch of guys my age. Like, do you think you are immune from, like, cheating on your wife? 
Or like, do you think you are immune from like killing somebody? Or do you think you're immune from insert big, scary yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. like, you know, moral failure or whatever in there? And what we kind of came to is like, no, like we're all capable of that. Yeah. And like the most monstrous person you can think of, I personally believe if you really like, if you track their story, you can understand. You can't, you don't condone why yeah. these things. But you're like, could you really say that if I was put in these situations, if I was born to that family yep. and went through everything that person went through, am I really saying that I I wouldn't have been capable of doing exactly what they did? And I think the answer is no. And that's, yeah. that's really tough, I think, to kind of get your head around. Well, it's like everyone, if they think about like Nazi Germany or whatever, would love to believe that they'd be the one who's like hiding the Jews and like helping them escape. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. On yeah. average, they'd be a fucking Nazi. That's <laughs> yeah, so true. Yeah. Like I, I was listening to something the other day and they were talking about like stories in general and they made that very point. They said, Particularly in the West, we had this, this thing where we we put our we cast ourselves always as the hero. Yeah, it's like oh, I'm Frodo or I'm Harry or I'm Moses. Yeah. Like nobody watches the Prince of Egypt and says, "Yeah, I, I'm really Ramesses in this in this story." Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and like the way I've heard people argue, like the way you're supposed to read these like ancient stories is not that like oh, I'm the good guy. It's like oh no, how do I make sure I'm not the bad guy? And that's an oversimplification, but yeah. So it is like the idea that like this is possible, this is a thing, this is a path, and this is a path that you could feasibly take. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think like the thing that triggered it is like we were saying like things that really, if I I believe, and I, I, I think this is like something that other people could definitely disagree with, like, but I think like you can never really say and like when you're judging or talking about other people, I would never do that. Yeah. You know, uh, or how could they, how could they have done that? Um, I think the, and I think that's, it's so hard because it, it kind of goes against the grain of kind of everything we've been taught in terms of like good and evil and morality and, and all that sort of stuff. It's very nurturing uh, rather than kind of naturey. I think this comes back also though to what we were talking about um meekness and like you have to acknowledge that you're capable of unspeakable evil (laughs) Mm. and you choose not to (laughs) yeah so like you know the meek shall inherit the earth like the person who understands their capacity for evil but chooses not to walk that path like that's a special human being yeah yeah that's moses (laughs) um little nerdy film moment there was an awesome frame where Daddy Pharaoh is standing there, and then he his his uh, figure uh-huh. and his head lines up perfectly with like the huge statue yeah. in the background, and I just loved that. Like he like he is the god of Egypt. Yeah. Like and here's his face, literally his actual image. That like these I don't know how what the population of Egypt was say five hundred thousand or a million people I don't know. Like they all saw that face. And he's like standing up there, ruling down. And it's the bit where they're talking about like the dynasty. And you're just like, this is a strong tradition that has just like systematically been there for many years. I think Egypt was like probably the most like technologically advanced 
nation of its time, like that ancient Egypt that, that we kind of saw in the movie. Like it was like it was like the New York City or like the Babylon. You know, it yeah, was like yeah, it yeah. was the hot shiz. Like it was it was really where it was at. Also interesting that it was built off the back of like a slave economy. And yeah. You could argue, no, you couldn't. Not you could argue, like it's the same with the West. Yeah. You know, like that dynamic that this movie explores still exists today. Like the wealth is basically created off the backs of slaves. So talking about like acknowledging your capacity for evil by us fucking using iPhones and Bro. we're complicit with slavery and evil. Yeah. And like, so to your point before of like, whenever you go to judge someone else, Look at your fucking slave machine in your hand. Bro. <laughs> I'm yeah. walking around with like black evil in my hand. Yeah. Like, okay, this is a part of me. And this is like, this is, I've deemed this acceptable. Mm-hmm. Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so impossible. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea that the human story is really just repeating itself Mm. i don't love that idea i just mean i think it's there's a lot of truth to it and you know if you look at this story and a lot of it is fiction in comparison to uh the biblical narrative and obviously we all have our own opinions on that uh but this is the human story like this is the story of our lives you know and like i like the, the the duality idea of like the two brothers we have inside of us, you know, like inside of us, there is a Moses and there is a Ramesses. And like, depending on the day or the circumstance or the scenario, it's like certain people will get your Ramesses. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, and and that's, that's unfortunate and that's scary. Or, you know, there'll be certain scenarios where your Ramesses will come out. Um, And then that's the the call to us. So that's what I think like the, what this movie kind of challenges us is, is like, what's the path you're going to take? Yeah, like we talked a little bit about this just in the immediate aftermath of like what I, that I'd watched the movie, but like for me that was the biggest theme the the hostile brothers that archetype like the the good and the evil, but um, like that within the self as like the different aspects of the psyche, mm. like that that's wild. And you're right, we all do have a Ramesses in a as a Moses, and you know which path are you, you know, which one are you going to cultivate within yourself? I love that word cultivate. Like I, I'm a huge fan of the, I think it's the native American two wolf yeah. sort of philosophy. We you know it's basically Moses Ramsey. It's what we've just said. It's just yeah. a different way of saying it. You know, there's two wolves inside of us, like to oversimplify it, like a good wolf and a bad wolf. Yeah. And like whatever one you feed grows yeah. and whatever <laughs> one you starve shrinks. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. And like, something that i'm sure we're gonna get to as well in the end and we've touched on this a little bit as well but you know like the integration of the ramesses within Mm. yourself the acknowledgement of your capacity for evil but choosing to take the other path like that's a really big part but yeah and perhaps where a part of the story doesn't feel wholly satisfying at the end but also the fact that like i'm sure you could have a religious scholar who might be able to unpack that like in more depth yeah um 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, and like we will get there, but it's just it's just not a happy ending for for me. It's actually no. Like if I was walking out of the cinema of this movie, like it would be it would be the quiet walk. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Like yeah. when you go, like, and usually like sometimes you're like chatting with your friends straight away. Oh, that was great. But it's like sometimes it's like you walk all the way to the car and you don't say a word. Mm. Like that's kind of how this movie hit me uh, after watching it again for so, for so long. Uh, love the, the 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 brother like dynamic scene where it's like, uh, what does Moses say? He's like, oh, yeah, you're right, Ramesses. There goes the pyramids. I can see all the temples crumbling into the Nile, like really egging him on. And yeah. he, like water balloons the magicians and like blames Ramesses again. <laughs> yeah. But it's like it's like that little kind of like this real like brotherly relationship where it's like he knows how to cheer Ramesses up and then they're late to the banquet. And yeah. it's, just, it's very fun. A lot of fun stuff going on there. Yeah, and like interestingly in this phase like if the these are two different parts of the psyche they are like really in nice balance with each yeah, other they are and it like they play off each other really well and another thing actually that's really present in all of like my favorite people in the world is generally they have like a really dark sense of humor or like there's a real darkness to them as yeah, well yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you yeah. know like there's like some dark really funny and it's always really funny as well yeah like what is that all about actually why yeah. is like humor and like darkness quite aligned i think like humor is a way to like kind of um keep a rein on the darkness yeah like it's a little bit like a. I'm struggling to find a word, like whatever you put in like a mule's mouth, like a bit. Yeah, yeah, You know, because I think it's so wild. Like maybe a donkey would be like a better analogy of like Mm -hmm. this wild, chaotic beast. Yeah. And humor is kind of like a way to kind of like contain that a wee bit (laughs) and use its energy for good rather than like evil. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, And I think there's something scary about people that are too squeaky clean. 100%. If people don't, if people are all kind of like light, it makes me very suspicious because yeah. I'm like, what are you hiding? Whereas like, who, was it Young who says like, you should keep your shadows in front of you? Hmm. Like, I really like that idea where it's like, and that's what, for me, like that's what in- integrity is. Like an old mentor of mine, like he said, like integrity is not about being faultless. Huh. It's about being falseless. Yeah. And I think that's really key. And I think maybe like that's kind of what's going on with like Pharaoh, like Daddy Pharaoh, although maybe you do see it a bit. I was going to say, like, you don't really see his humanity. Mm. You, you see it slightly in his relationship with his wife. There's like a couple of little, like, back and forwards where they're kind of like, oh, what will we do about our sons, sort of mm. thing. But I think, like, ultimately, like, there's a hardness there or a single mindedness that doesn't really balance that out properly. But again, could be the trauma of, like, committing genocide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah right like just to go there yeah you know what and it's like he doesn't acknowledge it either like they're only slaves oh mate that's the most chilling line in this movie and like the it way comes he, up a few times the way though. he says it he's like oh my boy yeah they're only slaves I know it's crazy <laughs> I know and there's like all sorts of other like tangents we could go down off that into like uh, taking the humanity out of other people so that you can mm. do whatever you want with them. So true. You don't see their humanness. Yeah. Um, and actually something that I hadn't really, like, I was aware of, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a thing to, to jump into specifically. If it, if we go there, we go there. But um, 
you know, like different races as well, like the Hebrews and Egyptians are yeah. like racism, basically. Literally racism, well. yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, it's a really hard line this movie had to walk because mm-hmm. it was playing the good and evil character. Yeah. It's like, and I think I even said to you in the voice message, I was like, you know, not to be racist, but like the bad Egyptians and the good Hebrews. You know I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. It, it, that's complicated. Yeah. Like, and this movie actually, like, it, it generated a good amount of, con- like it was banned in Egypt. Oh, okay. It was censored. Like, you couldn't watch it. And it was also censored in, like, the Maldives and some other Islamic countries. Right. The Islamic countries was because part of their tradition is you're not allowed to have any visual representation of, like, a holy prophet. Yeah. And because Moses is, like, a central prophet, they're like, you can't have him on the screen. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, the Egyptian one, the Egyptian reason was because they, the filmmakers had the wrong pharaoh in the movie. Oh. So Ramesses was not Ramesses. Huh. Ramesses was like somebody else. It begins with M. Uh-huh. Uh, and Ramesses is kind of like uh, a really respected and like highly regarded pharaoh. He's like a good pharaoh. Uh-huh. And they were annoyed that like they made him a bad guy in the movie. So that I think was why uh, there was problems in real life Egypt about this. But yeah, complicated whenever you're you're having people groups go up against each other. At the same time, in a lot of ancient history, that is what it was. Yeah. And in modern history too, I guess. You know, it's there's so much of that nation against nation, people against people group against people group. I think just it's it, there was a brutality to it in you know the ancient times, like tribe on tribe and stuff. That's just so hard for us to get our head around today. Yeah, I honestly do not believe this movie would be made today. <laughs> yeah, well, so, like, do you really think so? Like, let's say, like, I don't know who would even touch it today. Let's just say, like, Disney would never do it for a million reasons. But, like, let's say Disney was making this movie. Like, how could you make it? It wouldn't, it couldn't be because apart from anything, like, it would just get so many people, like, like outraged. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And, like, big companies... Uh, because of like, apart from anything, like the financial backing and investment, we're like, oh, no, going to piss off too many people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just step back. And like, yeah. I kind of, like there's part of me that has so, I feel so like gross, the sanitized like yeah. nature of things nowadays that um, like if someone's going to get offended, like it's okay for someone to be offended by something. Yeah. It doesn't mean like, erase it yeah 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 <laughs> or like if someone's got an, like it's it's it holds back artistic expression I can't remember what you call the guy who you mentioned who um, set out to like fulfill his dream of doing this movie yeah it's maybe why it's so special because it's like one man's like vision yeah 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 and like that's art you yeah, know yeah. it's incredible the next scene was uh, Moses' wife like as a slave, oh, yeah. like in the temple. And there's some a lovely little callback <laughs> moment of like, you know, Moses effectively let her go and she like mm. fell into the water and stuff. And like, yeah. there's like lots of like very interesting stuff going on there. But again, for a kid's movie, like the brother basically stood up and was like, here's a concubine for you to sleep with. Yeah. I was like, well, hold on <laughs> a second. What are we doing here, lads? And in yeah. the next scene is like her tied up in the bedroom. Yeah. I'm like, what is happening here? 
here and then like you realize it's like it's it's not actually her it's the servant and all that sort of stuff but yeah like the movie like it just went for it and it like it said is its its intentions out very clearly from the start it's like this is going to be one of those kids movies that is like going to give you nightmares (laughs) (laughs) or like it's going to skirt the line so so closely of like should kids be watching this but my reaction, even as I said, it's so interesting. Like, should kids be exposed to the reality of the world? I was just going to ask you that. Like, like should kids yeah. be like, exp- like you know, a lot of the like, even like the grim fairy tales. Yeah. Like most of the Disney stories we know, like you know, all of us know they have horrific origin stories, and they're yeah. all like murderous and like tortured. And the reason they existed was to they were like fables. Aesop's fables are another good example. Yeah. Like Tortoise and the Hare, and you know, the, the thousands of other ones. They're like stories to teach kids lessons about basically the chaos and the brutality of the world and how you need to keep your wits about you. And there's been a lot of like criticism through the Victorian era of like how these were used to like control kids and stuff. If you set that aside, like, is like, would I let my daughter watch this movie? Mm. The better question is, at what age would I let her watch it? Yeah. Because I know for a fact that like we were probably watching this when we were like, five probably four you know yeah um crazy well it's there's like a broader thing to even look at here as well because um i know you've like traveled and seen different parts of the world and i've definitely been to different parts of the world that would be considered not as developed as the west and like the kids basically hanging on to his dad or his mum on the back of a motorbike. Yeah, 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 yeah. And or he, going and butchering the goat for dinner because it's dinner time. 100%, yeah, yeah, just like go and stick the knife into the goat. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, is there a certain, like, arrogance to think, like, we're like, oh, no, that's very primitive, or, like, maybe it's the fucking right thing to do to let your two-year-old go and got a goat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. as... You know, or just watch the movie. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, uh, as someone who's not a father, like, it's not. You know, I can't actually say that with any real because I'm sure it's a very different thing on the level of feeling, which is the most important thing. Yeah. Like, how I'm curious, just what is your feeling on that? Like, say your daughter gets to four, the same sort of age. How would yeah. you feel about her? You know, sitting down in front of that. Like, this is not a judgment statement to anybody listening because my daughter's not four and I will most likely have a different opinion. Yeah. But, like, if I think about, like, Eliana watching this, like, when she's four, I'm like, it's too young. Mm. That's my my, that's my initial reaction. And that surprises me because I'm literally someone who's all talk. I'm like, exactly what you've said. I'm like, kids should be exposed to the real world. You know, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. like, I always think about, like... um Farming kids, yeah, like kids of farmers, people who are who are brought up on that kind of environment, surrounded by death, always, yeah. And I think that's so important. Like, I think we like we distance ourselves from death so much in the West, and I think it really hurts us. Mm-hmm. And that whereas if you're like on a farm, like you're seeing the lambs being born, yeah. and you're seeing the mum sheep who dies in labour, and that's part of your life, or you see, you know, the pig that you've raised being on your your Sunday table. Yeah. You know, and like, that's the real world. Like, nature is brutal. Nature is beautiful and glorious, but it is chaotic and destructive and uh, like really, really uh, difficult as well. And I think 
that our sanitized lives and our detachment from that only hurts us. Because I think then whenever we come in contact with the chaos later, Mm -hmm. we're kind of like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The world is supposed to be safe and sanitized. Like, this is not okay. Whenever actually, no, 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 no. Like, suffering is part of life. Chaos is part of life. So I'm fine on the conceptual level. Yeah. And I'm really, like, my wife and I, like, really want to raise our kids really attached to that. Like, and really aware of just the hardship of life because we believe life is hard. We believe that uh, hard and bad are not the same thing. Yeah. Where, like, hard can be good and, like, you know, uh, easy can be bad, actually. And I think a lot of our problems today is is connected to comfort and ease. But would I let her watch it? I think it depends on the kid. Mm. Uh, I think, like, I would definitely, I would read her the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I would tell her the story and I would, te- maybe that gives me a little more element of control where I can go into certain aspects it with more nuance rather than just like, here is one, effectively, here's one man's version of this story in all the detail he wanted to go into rather than like the father's heart to be a wee bit like lofty about it that can kind of speak specifically to each child. There's my answer. That's as close as I'm going to get. I think... um because I'd be the same as you, like on this conceptual level, yeah, I'd be a hundred percent like you know, let the kid do the shit, you yeah. know, and like yeah. all and on the conceptual level, I think like whenever you sanitize things and try and like cut parts out and hide things, um, there's something really deep in this. You are creating a narrative world that doesn't line up with the objective world. Mm. And the narrative world that you're passing on is like, oh, this evil thing doesn't exist. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I have a belief that a lot of people's suffering is whenever their narrative world doesn't line up with the objective world. That's it, yeah. And then they're like, why? You mean, you mean the world's hard? No, it's not. Um, actually. <laughs> yeah, objectively it is. And you're just because your narrative world is saying it's not, then you meet suffering. There's like yeah. friction there. Yeah. Um, and I feel like... Um, the more you can uh, just be in alignment with what is. So bringing your narrative world more into alignment with the objective world, the smoother life goes through. So you probably still encounter all the same painful things. You just won't suffer at the same because you'll just be able to say like whenever the the sheep dies in labor you're like yes that is that happens yeah um but again very easy to conceptualize like passing that on to your you know toddler or child but then actually doing it yeah i also think and maybe this is me trying to wiggle out like i do think there's a difference between like the child being there and seeing the sheep die Mm. versus like a really fast really like uh, short sequence of something you yeah. see on a movie that like with the sheep scenario like you can really be in that moment mm-hmm. you can like that's what's going on and that's the tone for like the six hours or the, the week around that if it's really upsetting for the, the you know yeah the child uh, whereas like in a movie like this it's just so fast there's just so much going on and like do you really have the moment to like then sit with that feeling and sit with that emotion 
and sit with that reality because then next thing you know like you're you're laughing the next minute because like you know the the, the camel is doing something funny in the next <laughs> scene do you know what i mean like it, yeah. it's a little bit i don't know but uh, the medium is is difficult in general like and we haven't really made this decision yet like we're very we're very questioning about like should we show our kids anything mm. like in their first few years like and like as of right now and again this is not a judgment statement on anyone it's mainly because we haven't figured out what we want to do yet yeah like you know she hasn't she hasn't watched something you know um and i don't know when we will introduce that or how we will introduce that because i do believe it should be introduced because this mm-hmm. is the world we live in um but yeah, I, I'm not sure. That's probably why I'm, I'm not sure as well. Is because just in general, would I let her see any movie at four? Uh, I don't know. You're right as well. Like the medium is really important. I really like what you said actually about like I would tell her that story. I don't know yeah. if I'd necessarily let her. I would definitely watch. tell her it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And because then you're opening up your child to be influenced by. You know, and then you've just got to, like, I suppose, trust this man's vision. <laughs> you know, like, do I trust this man's vision? Yeah, Look, I, I'm going to go really <clears throat> off the deep end here. This yeah. is what the show's about. Uh, I remember talking to a very respected individual <clears throat> uh, who lived in New York, mm. and he was telling the story of some of his friends who are like big executives at major companies. Like you're talking like Nike, mm-hmm. Universal Studios, like like the big, big. And he made this offhand comment and he said, I can walk into your kid's bedroom and tell you which one of my friends are discipling your children. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that is crazy. Now, there's a, there's a six-hour conversation in that. Yeah. Uh, there's a book I really want to read by Gabor Mate. Have you come across Gabor? I feel like you'd like him. Oh, he's like my biggest influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just had that vibe. I was yeah. like, dude, you're a disciple of Gabor. I could just tell. 100%. Uh, he's not someone I've, I've gone into a lot. Actually, I'm going to talk about him later on. It's funny I brought him up there. Probably why I did. Um, <laughs> he has a book called Hold Your Kids Close. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it. I've read the blurb, and the blurb is basically like... W- our culture like basically allows our kids to to like go off at such a young age and be discipled by their peers rather than by kind of like the the elders yes like the old people in the tribe like they don't have a lot of adult relationships it's mainly like teen on teen mm-hmm. learning and he like from what i can gather like has a bit of like a cautionary tale around that where it's like other cultures around the world don't do it like this, and maybe we should at least raise our eyebrows and question why we it is we do it this way. But that's to package all that up. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, do you want like do you trust this person's vision, or do you trust like you know some big social media executive to disciple your kids or to you know influence them and all that sort of stuff? I do believe in freedom. I do believe it's good for kids to explore stuff, but it's it's the line that I haven't had to yet walk, so I don't really know. Well, you turned out all right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so right, so let's go to uh, Moses's big awakening, where he oh, yeah. is, he meets his sister. Yeah. So what what happened to you when you saw that? That really moved me 
Miriam as a character really moved me throughout this whole thing. Yeah. I, I know I just asked you a question and I'm still talking. I'm just <laughs> going to slip this in here. Something I really appreciate about this movie I think it shows really strong female characters. Yeah. Like Moses' mother, like get the courage. Like if anything, like, and I promise you I'm not beating the drum for the sake of beating it. Like I felt like this was a, like the story was driven by the women. Mm. Like it was Moses' mother that set it in motion. It was the mercy of, of mama Pharaoh yep. that spared the child and like allowed that child to exist. Yeah. It was Miriam who like time and time again, like basically like keeps Moses on the path. Yeah. Like, and even Sephora, like Moses's wife, like she's badass as well. Yeah. There's so much going on there. And I was like, that was one moment where I was like, okay, 90s, fair play. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because, like, that's not really what a lot of things were going on in the 90s, you know? It might've been around when that sort of thing was bubbling up though i mean like you think of spice girl (laughs) like that sort of thing uh maybe like that sort of movement was coming forward but yeah you make a really really good point and interestingly like my own healing journey like some of my like core uh trauma seems like a really heavy word but like some of the core stuff in my life that uh has been at the root of probably times where I've suffered is around the feminine and like I mean external feminine but also like uh, the feminine part of my own psyche as well Um, growing up in a culture where not just like the feminine isn't respected within each individual but like feminine values aren't as respected as male values of like order and strength and hardness um and like there's just so much that we could go into there but uh you know this does characterize strong femininity which i think it's really important to unpack here uh strong femininity isn't a biological female strong in masculine qualities <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not like it's not um, you know fair play to the female bodybuilder listening it's not like the super strong woman soldier with like akimbo guns yeah like that's something different do you know what i mean it's not like even like the pantsuit ceo woman yeah, yeah, of yeah. like she's awesome but she's strong in her masculinity yeah yeah and like strong femininity is exactly what you were saying it's like the two mothers at the start it's like how strong is the mother to have the faith to Mm. to let go and like um ultimately embrace the chaos it's like i'm open to the chaos the creative chaos energy which is like the feminine energy um and see their faith is like warranted it's like oh it worked <laughs> yeah and that's like that's the spirit of like fucking witches and stuff yeah and, yeah, yeah um and then the 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 po- like the positive female archetype the nurturing mother that's like re- like incredibly strong femininity like mama pharaoh taking in this baby it's just a just a random baby turns up and that was the other thing like again so subtle I th- I think I only just about caught it like when uh, Ramesses and Moses were like messing with Sephora like when she was tied up and like throw her in the in the in the water and stuff like Moses's pharaoh mum 
like was really angry at them. Yeah. There was this moment where like whenever like Moses like let Okay, you want me to let you go? As you wish. And, That's then, right. and then he splashes and then you see like Moses' Pharaoh mom give him a look like, How dare you do this to another woman? And yeah. he's like all pouty and all like, Oh no, I shouldn't have done that. Like <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> But uh is it Miriam his sister? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like so I love that character as well because Sandra Bullock, by the way. Oh, well, Sandy! I, I could not have guessed that at all. Could like I didn't hear it. Yeah. Oh, well, I heard it when I like really listened. But yeah, Sandra Bullock. So that character for me, uh, right up into my like late twenties, I didn't have. So I went to like an all boys school. I didn't really have many female friends or anything. No female cousins, no sisters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, had a challenging relationship with my mom growing up, and yeah. ended up my parents split up. Went to live with my mom, and then left to go live with my dad. And so, like in a you know very quickly, probably start to get the idea of like I really had a. Um, a lot of issues around that. Sure. And uh, especially being, and I say this because I am also like having very strong, like empathetic qualities, very yeah. sensitive, like things that typically can get choked out in like a hyper masculine sort of environment. Yeah. And within yourself, you learn from the culture to, it's so insidious. Like those. Uh, you do it to yourself because you're taught to do it to yourself. You learn to like yeah. suppress those things in yourself. Self-censorship, yeah. Wild. Um, but because of that life journey, I got really like into adulthood without having any really good female friends. Yeah. And I think I had this idea that um, I didn't even really know that that was a thing. Like I, a younger version of myself and like right up into my 20s probably would have assumed something like men and women aren't really friends. One of them's probably just trying to ride the other one basically. Sure, yeah. And what then the other one isn't that interested. So there's like this kind of equilibrium. But given circumstances were about to change that, you know, it would be more than friendship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's always hinged on the room, on the romantic relationship rather than the platonic. And I, I had that belief that like that's that's always what that was. Mm -hmm. But like you know, in my more recent adulthood, I mean, I'm talking like the last seven years, probably like learned what it is to have like really good platonic female friends, mm -hmm. and like there's no part like I, I wouldn't let that go to a romantic place and it feels like there's no part of that would go to a romantic place sure. any more than us sitting here yeah, you know yeah. like it's just not uh, a consideration do you know really help me with that having like throughout my life having like being friends with like 50 year old women yeah okay because there was ne there was never a chance it was going to be romantic do no. you know what I mean? like fair play to them but like That allowed me to explore that of just like, oh, like I can I can have like Miriams and like <laughs> yeah. like Pharaoh mothers in my life and like, you know, and, and that's cool. And that actually helped me with like my quote unquote like sisters, like peer yes. peer female relationships, if that makes sense. So that that's exactly it. Like I have like female friends in my life that like fit the sister archetype, you yeah. know? It's like Yeah, that fits that perfectly. And like Miriam reminded me of some of those friends. So cool. It's What like, a compliment that is. You should send, you should send like 
the character to them and be like, thank you, Miriam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Wait, I, don't, I don't think I'm the Messiah, like, chosen one. I just mean, like, you're an encouragement. Oh, crap, what have I done? <laughs> yeah. Considering I've got a hoodie on that says, like, hashtag not a cult on the back of it. Like, let's... But anyway, that's a whole other uh, tangent to go down. But yes, awesome. Like, I mean, really love that character. Loved exactly... I didn't pick up on that necessarily, but you're right. Like, that's... Um, and relevant to my like current ongoing healing stuff around that Very as well. Cool. I appreciate you sharing all that. While you were talking there, I was thinking how interesting. I don't know if the filmmakers planned this. Like you could argue that like the defect in Ramesses is that his feminine side wasn't nurtured. Mm. And again, just that subtlety of he clearly didn't have a great relationship with his mom. Yes. Because yeah. mom was more into Moses, didn't have a sister. You know, he he too lacked the feminine input that maybe would have mellowed a pharaoh uh, or sorry, not even mellowed, uh, knocked the edges off. Because we never see, we, we don't see, we don't even see Ramesses' wife. We don't oh, see, yeah. We don't see anything. Like all we see is Ramesses with his male magicians, his male soldiers and his male son. <laughs> his male son. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, 21st century, you might yeah, have to yeah. make that clear. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that movie would never get made. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Miriam straight away and actually, this could be a bit of a criticism of the movie. I think they actually portrayed Aaron, Moses' brother, uh-huh. as like super weak. Yeah. Like perhaps unnecessary. Like there was no real reason to. But throughout the whole movie, he has one like redemptive moment where like yeah. he's the first one to walk through the Red Sea. And that's really important yeah. in history because Aaron went on to become the high priest of Israel. Oh. He's the priest, like he's he's the main guy. Uh, but really interestingly, like up until that point, like I wonder why they chose to do that. Was it maybe to overplay the feminine? Was it just this is just a, a way to play with like character dynamics to make the scenes more tense? I don't know. I mean, Aaron was uh, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, that is one I did pick up. Did you hear him? Yeah, I was like, I yeah. love Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. he even like had Jeff Goldblum isms. Yeah, like, his wee character movements and all. Yeah. I love when animators do that. So oh, cool. it's so good. There was like some little line where he's like, oh, we were tired from the work, but like, oh no, there wasn't too much. Work. We rather enjoyed it. <laughs> Mate, I literally wrote that down. Oh so my God. Funny. Love Jeff Goldblum. So that, that was a joy. But um, I think maybe you know where you've like said that he was characterized in like a kind of that he was weak in a sense like maybe it's just to play up the fact that like at the end that he becomes very strong in his faith yeah yeah, yeah. so he's he's yeah that's true he's kind of he's kind of like portrayed as like a non-believer yes because yeah, yeah, even yeah. after like in the middle of the movie like he's like it was him i, I was like who's this random like hebrew like yelling at moses and then i was like Oh crap, it's actually Aaron. Like he's yeah. so mean to his brother. Yeah, and then to come full circle at the end to be the yeah. most uh, the the guy with the strongest faith, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Moses and as a result. What's of- really interesting is that so in the actual biblical narrative, uh-huh. uh Aaron did a lot of the miracles. Oh. Aaron was the one with the staff a lot of the times. What? Yeah. And Aaron actually was Moses' voice mouthpiece wow so Moses was too afraid to talk and like do you remember in the bit with the burning bush where like and we'll get there like oh. we're like we'll get there we'll get there <laughs> we're like uh, God's like really angry at Moses and he goes off and that's when Moses falls back because Mo- Moses is like they won't listen to me like I can't speak and then God's like 
like, who made the human mouth? Or like whatever it yeah. was. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. Like yeah. at that point in the narrative, like God's like, fine. Like if you don't, if you don't want to speak, your brother will speak. And Aaron came out into the wilderness and met Moses and went back into Egypt with him. So that was a oh, big man. difference. Um, but it's just, it's, it's an interesting choice that they made. Anyway, I love how, as you said, I don't even know who we were ruling. You said how Miriam like summoned the subconscious of Moses through the song. Oh yeah. Where like right. she brought to the front into his conscious mind, what he subconsciously knew and she did it through her song. And I love what they did visually where you see like Moses's mother's face in Miriam and the tear running down in exactly the same place. And I, I when I was like thinking about this, I was like, it was a, it's a little bit like like a scene in Pokemon where like literally like it's Moses versus Miriam and Moses like use like racist insult <laughs> and then Miriam's like, oh, and then she's like, hit him with like the super mother lullaby, like that'll get him. And it's like, boom, super effective. And you just see it in his face. Like, yeah. And I love like the the musician, the singer that, that sings uh, Moses' mother's lines, like, are just so beautiful and so rich and so powerful. And it just, like, you see it in his animated face where, like, that just hit him in his soul and he now knows. Yeah. And then he went and explored the history on the walls of Egypt. That scene. The trip of a lifetime, the trippiest dream sequence I've ever seen in a movie. And it's, like, weird because it's an animated movie, but, like, because they were, like, using, like, the hieroglyphic kind of styles yeah, yeah. on the wall, it looked like, I was like, oh, this this scene is animated. And I was like, no, wait, it's all animated. <laughs> but, like, that's how into the story I was, where it's like, oh, this is a little cartoon bit of the movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it is really good to, like, differentiate it as, like, the dream. Like, that's a yeah. good stylistic choice, well, isn't it? Well, there is there's a little bit of a safety buffer for my daughter. In mm-hmm. fairness to... The, the the one man with the vision is perhaps because it was not quote unquote real life. Yeah. It was a little bit easier to digest. Yeah. Um but yeah, crazy. Like literally the the, the genocide of a, a whole generation of people. This is interesting. I didn't expect this to come up. <clears throat> it's a little bit of a foreshadowing again of the story of Christ because King Herod Mm. kills all the firstborn um, males in the yeah. area because there is that, the wise, not the wise man, like he it, he's informed that like, oh, no, it is the wise man. It is the wise man. Um, there's going to be a leader emerges from the Israelites. And again, in that story, the Israelites are enslaved to the Romans. Mm. And so there's this crazy mirroring sort of picture going on. And I was reading like some like, Jewish Wikipedia page so you know this the source is loose we shall say but they said one of the reasons it's believed that Pharaoh made that order to kill all the babies was because there was a rumour that there was going to be like a deliverer rise up out of them Uh, which again is the exact same scenario of like Herod and Jesus yeah Um, the the biblical narrative doesn't say that the biblical narrative literally just says like um, there was too many Israelites like there's oh, literally okay. so many of them. Like they were just popping the babies out like yeah. mad. And the Egyptians were like, whoa, like this is getting out of control. Like we got to we gotta do something to like keep the numbers down. Uh-huh. Again, back to the, the idea of like female strength. Interestingly, Pharaoh is not named in the biblical narrative. 
Huh. And that's really important in like Torah traditions. Names are really important. So the fact that his name was omitted is like a bit of a snub, you could mm. argue. But you know who is named? Two Hebrew midwives at the very start. Wow. Like the first chapter, he orders these midwives. They were like the senior midwives that must have overseen like all of the births somehow. Yeah. I don't know. They, they must have had like an elite team. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they rebelled against Pharaoh and he gives them the order, I want you to kill every boy that's born. Gee. And they were like, no. And they're literally, there's like a line in the Torah that like honors these women as like, these women are kind of heroes. Like look wow. what they did. And it says something like, God bless them with their own families or something because of it. Like kind of <laughs> a bit cryptic, but yeah. So there's a lot of reasons why maybe he did it. Again, a little bit more like subtext, I suppose. Like, so you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you've got Jacob, Jacob, and sons. That's like the story of Joseph with a technicolor coat. Yeah. And then Joseph moves to Egypt through his long story. And they, the makers of this movie actually did a Joseph movie after oh, this. Okay. Um, but he moved to Egypt and through a long scenario, he like became like prime minister, basically. Then there was a famine. The Hebrew people moved to Egypt. And that's how these Hebrews in this movie got there. They're like descendants of of. Uh, Joseph and his family huh. so and they just multiplied and multiplied and multiplied but literally the line in the in the Torah is like then a pharaoh came into power who was not friends with Joseph's family or like did not did not know Joseph or something like that yeah. and that's when the whole dynamic shifted but what about the sequence itself for a kids movie like yeah I mean do I remember right that there's something like at the very end like kind of end of it where he's like fully realizing it. Like just the babies are all just like falling into the river They're with the crocodiles. With the crocodiles and the whole screen goes red with blood. Yeah. Dark. And you. <laughs> like yeah. how do you do that? Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, it is fairly like, it's reasonably abstract. Suggested. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, so I, I get like, they're, they're, they're trying to soften it as much as possible, but I mean, it's still some real shit. I mean, and I was going to say, like, it's it's just, it's so brutal, but like, the story, like, what actually happened is brutal. It's like, there's no words. Beyond brutal. It's like the worst thing. Yeah. It's actually the worst thing because it's like, it's proper, I... I I don't know why I want to use these words because they're strange words to use, but it's like proper malevolent evil. Mm. Like to kill thousands of babies, the most yeah. innocent thing. Yeah. Bro, I just made a crazy connection. I've never made this connection in my life. Bro, <laughs> this is wild. One of the plagues, Moses turned the Nile into blood. Huh. And that's where all the babies were thrown. Uh, Dude. That's super interesting. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, I did not. That's, that's wow. great. It was so fun to watch the like, light bulb go. Like, <gasps> yeah. I need to pull my mom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I actually thought you were going to go somewhere different with that. That like, There's another time but like, that we'll talk about, I'm sure, a more obvious one. But yeah, that's that's wild, isn't it? the river turning to blood the blood of the fucking dead babies yeah, basically yeah wow and then obviously it's and I didn't actually really appreciate this in the story until watching this time and this is maybe where you're going where like again like this idea of like repeating themes 
it's like all these Hebrew babies die, and then at the end, all these Egyptian babies die. Yeah, so it's like, very complicated. It's very tit for tat. It's very kind of like revenge, almost would be the word I would use. So that was something and that, that's com- that's complicated, really complicated, and something that I actually haven't really thought about too much. But it did cross my mind just as I was driving up here was the idea of like is that just full integration of the shadow and is Mm -hmm. that like um so this like i said this isn't something that i've thought about Uh, this is being unpacked as i'm speaking (laughs) 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 yeah warning (laughs) verbal processing commencing (laughs) but um so one of the most challenging like probably easiest to relate it to my own life my own experiences i think because then you know it's just one person's experience um one of the and this is seems like objectively a small thing but my subjective experience of it was very difficult um and it's difficult for most kids but like my parents split up at an age uh like a formative age like I was 11 just about to turn 12 my mum left my dad and you know it probably paints more of the picture of like having difficulties with the feminine and then having to go and live with my mum and so hard at that age to like just that whole dynamic of like and again this is really interesting and this is from my own narrative the idea that uh, in a lot of divorce stories there's the casting of the good versus the evil. Yeah. And the reality is that doesn't exist. No. Like it's always gray versus gray. Mm -hmm. But as a child, you can only really process it as who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And then that's so hard at that 11, 12 stage, you know. Such a formative age. And like, you know, to be brutally honest, like I would have probably characterized then at least my mum as like the bad guy. She's leaving my dad. Um, And then obviously like you're the mother is like the archetypal feminine in your head. And if you believe the the feminine is the bad guy, then you can see how the rest of some of the stuff and then you go to school. Like what hope do you have? (laughs) I know. Jesus Christ. It's like we we both need to go into therapy after the watching the Prince of Egypt. <laughs> yeah, I mean we're both in therapy, so yeah, this is kind of it'll be the next therapy. Session. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, but where I was going with this, like, and this is quite a tangent, but it, it is coming back around, and it does line up. Like one of the most challenging things I had to do in my life, probably the hardest thing off the top of my head, was be the one to bring a three-year relationship to an end, you know, with a girl I was living with for a long time. I become the monster of my childhood. Dude. And I have to voluntarily choose to become the monster of my childhood. You've become the very thing you... Yeah. And Moses becomes the fucking monster of his childhood by slaying all of the Egyptian children. Bro. Just like, you know, he survived. His Egyptian father. (sighs) Right? What a trip, hey? Wow. And you know what? Like, we're all over the place at this point, so let's just go for it. Like, one of the most earth-shattering, heartbreaking moments of the movie was after the 10th plague. Like Moses is leaning against the wall and he's just crying. He just, yeah. he just sobs. 
And it's like, that's what I mean. The badassery of Moses with the burden of Moses in this movie is so beautifully oh, portrayed. So good. It's not like Moses, like, like you know, I think like maybe like the way other filmmakers just portrayed Moses is like almost like the war, the war hero that's like, stiff upper lip like let's go like absolutely blow these Egyptians to smithereens <laughs> yeah you know and no remorse no whatsoever and you just didn't get that in this movie you got like you got a very complex Moses who hated what he was doing yeah effectively and like to my very different scenario but like similar theme like I hated what I had to do like yeah. it was fucking awful like but is that what you would consider integration so in a I, way. It's like, I don't know if that's the perfect word for it, but it's something around that. And again, this is the sort of thing, like, I love that on this podcast, we can literally just talk this out. I don't have <laughs> yeah. to have like a set idea yeah, 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 to yeah. be like, uh, like bringing into the podcast. But um, I don't know if it's exactly integration, but it allows for a lot more compassion. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I can understand. So, like, I get to live that out, and then it lessens this, um, like, young part of myself's judgment on my mum. It makes like, your mum grayer. Yeah, exactly. It's which like, is really, <clears throat> it's really important. And I wonder if there's any part of that, you know, in this Moses story as well, where he basically becomes. The person, like, not directly by his hand, but he's complicit in this, like, slaying of babies. You know, that's the best. It's the best thread we've spun that looks to some form of integration between Moses and Ramesses. Yeah. You know, it's a pretty roundabout way of getting there because I know that's a, a big issue we kind of both have with the with the movie. Um, But, yeah, in a way, like, he did integrate Ramesses. Yeah. Ramesses didn't integrate him. I don't know. Yeah. That's hard. It is a really challenging one as well because I love it when, and this is again, like in the direct aftermath of watching the movie, like we sent a couple of messages back and forth without getting mm. into it too much. Yeah. And uh, like, I love the stories where the the bad guy ultimately like gets one round yeah. by the good guy and I know life doesn't always work out like that yeah, yeah, yeah. but if we're looking at it in the context of different parts of the psyche rather than yeah. like two different people um, and that's the problem with the, the very clear cut black and white good versus evil narrative yeah. is that it it seeks to obliterate parts of ourselves that can never be obliterated yeah you know there has to be an acceptance of the grey and the shadow in order to actually move through that, you know? It's like the more, what, what is it? Whatever you resist, persists sort of vibe. Yes, yeah. yeah. Like anything that you try and obliterate, you basically just push further into the unconscious, which will play out yeah. in its it, own way. It's like throwing the, the wolf a big bit of steak. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. You're like, I'm going to starve this wolf. And then like, like your, 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 your hand goes behind your back and it gives it a huge steak without you knowing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Jeez, yeah. So whenever, I know this might be jumping, like you said, we're, we're already jumping yeah. all over the place. We did pretty good, I'm proud of us. Yeah, we like pretty much there. We're about halfway. <laughs> um, 
you know, whenever Moses is, I think he says like goodbye, brother. At, at the end, after you know, um, they are on opposite sides of the sea. Um, he, you know, he hasn't won him over, and um, I'm trying to think, even as an example, like I'm not super into this in the way that some people get super into this. But are you familiar with like the Japanese uh, Dragon Ball type series? Oh, like Dragon Ball Z? Yeah. Like my knowledge of this is probably just like. Like I have a, a very loose like a thirty well. second clip I saw of like someone going like super Saiyan. mode yeah. super Saiyan yeah um, okay so like again like so, apologies in advance because some people are really into this and I'm gonna maybe butcher some of it but uh, main character Goku wins over the bad guy like at the end of each kind of like um, I can't remember well let's just call it like an arc of the yeah. story yeah and. Maybe in the next arc of the story, uh, he can call upon the bad guy from the previous Ooh. arc who's like can help him out or something. Bro, like look that. at or, this. And like that's like fertile ground. Beautiful integration of the shadow, like something mm. you're battling with against, but you ultimately like have it then on your side yeah, to call yeah, upon yeah. and make you more powerful. Yeah. It's like the demon ultra marathoners talk about Ooh. like ultra endurance athletes. Like I've heard like two ultra guys and gals actually talk to each other and literally like walk up to each other and use these exact words like what's your demon because hmm. there's kind of this understanding that like in order for you like the power you have to run 100 miles like you've harnessed some form of chaos yeah. that gives you the ability to do that you you're goku that has like an uh a dragon from a previous quest that now fights on your side, you know. Talk about yeah. a mixed metaphor, but there it is. No, it's good because, like, um, it's so true. You wouldn't be running an ultramarathon unless you had some fucked up shit. <laughs> but it's back to meekness. Mm. Like, behind every meek person is, like, a dragon. Oh, this is another thing that, like, you know, I'm talking – I've mentioned several character traits and people that, like, I love the most – Every one of them has a story that would fucking break your heart. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they've come through it and, um, you know, remained meek. Yeah. Or become meek. Yeah, no, that's more accurate to say that, yeah. actually. Yeah. No. Anyway, um, hard, hard pivot. Well, sorry, before that, Miriam delivers this line. Ask the man you call father. Oh, yeah. What a line. What a line that is. Moses' real dad was a, a Levite, and Levites it was uh, the tribe of Levi, uh, one of Jacob's 12 sons. They went on to become like the priest tribe. So huh. they were like all the temples. So Moses' biological dad's not in this, which was interesting as yeah. well. He is, he's kind of on the scene. Well, he is like one sentence in the Bible, which is more than most people get. Uh be pretty sweet to have a sentence. <laughs> yeah, I know, can you imagine? <laughs> then and then said. Scott Riley. <laughs> yeah. um, but I love like how Miriam just says that, like, ask the man you call father. Um, and then that cues his like big, like, lame is high school musical greatest showman moment. 
I don't know if you remember it, where he's like running and he's like, I, can, I don't know the words, but he's like, dun, 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 dun. and he's like running through the palaces and he's like yeah, touching everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, this oh, is marble. My. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff, yeah. That's it. It's like, look at this alabaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I like that because it was like very, very materialistic. Yeah. Like he looked to like like the material to try to stabilize himself like he was yeah. spinning on control and he's like but, but look at these uh, look at these look at this marble like look at this beautiful bed like yeah. and then he was like look at the dynasty of Egypt like I'm a prince of Egypt and I was like how interesting that like if you think about Egypt and the Egyptian side of Moses as like the false self or as yeah. you said the ego self egoic self um, like how often do we fall back on those things to try to stabilize ourselves <sighs> you know we're like no, but, but 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 my status, or like no, like this thing or that thing or like the success, you know. Yeah, uh, and what I love, like just like blitzing through stuff, like I love how Moses, like eventually, then, like you know, he kills the Egyptian. Mm-hmm. He is effectively exiled. He leaves, and there's this amazing, so subtle. And I only I, I, I love watching stuff like 15 years later. Like I'm really obsessed with the hero's journey and like the archetypes and stuff. And this is a really this hits so much of it, like so strongly. But there's this like, there's this idea in an archetype story of like a de-robing mm-hmm. where like a warrior like has his armor removed mm. and there's like a, like there's like a, a removal of that outer shell to get to yeah. So he goes to the desert there's a crazy sandstorm and he has this like baptism of sand yes. where like it, you know, it, it rips his jewelry off and like his wig gets, like his yeah. Egyptian rig, wig gets flown away. And then like, you know, he's literally stripped down to like the core. And then there's that little like kids moment where the goat like eats his head yeah. and pops up. And his, you know, the final bit, he goes to the well and he washes his face and the Egyptian makeup comes off his face. Yeah. It's the first time we've seen him, other than when he was a baby, that this is who he is. Everything's stripped away, like no makeup, no status, no luxury. It's literally just Moses, the Hebrew, pretty much naked man in the dirt, just like his ancestors have been yeah. for generations and here he is stranded, like completely stuck, completely lost. And I was like, bro, that's Hero's Journey stuffer right there. Yeah, the true self stripped of the egoic self, the story of his self. Yeah. He yeah, he had his story of the being a prince of Egypt stripped away yeah. and is left as what what's left? Yeah. Himself. As you've said many times, like his narrative was completely like like stripped off him. Like it was yeah. pulled out from under his feet. And literally in that scene, like the the removal of the the armor, or the, yeah. not the armor, whatever it is, yeah, like, like the bang. What do you even call them? Like the bangle elbow things? Yeah, whatever. The, the chest thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But that's really interesting. There's something significant for me as well. Like this was something that came to me not all that long ago. The idea of, um, I don't know why. Like sometimes after. I don't know whether it's specifically after having those like plant medicine experiences or psychedelic experiences where like ideas come in a really like strange metaphorical, almost like visual type way. But um, when even <clears throat> after meditative experiences, ideas will present themselves in that similar way that would never have been the case before in my life. So I don't know if this is something because I've been through those experiences that this is yeah, yeah, the yeah. way my mind works 
or something that maybe someone could get to just purely by meditating. But um, one thing that came to me at a time was how much in my younger life, um, whenever like I'd been hurt, you put on this like metaphorical armor mm-hmm. and like it really was to keep people out and was like really ugly armor. So like really like maybe in this visualization, like really spiky and dark and black and like allowed, it kept people away. Yeah. You start hanging outside City Hall. No, I'm so mean. I just couldn't resist. Yeah, no, that kind of idea though. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. And it's it's an ugly armor um, to keep you safe. So there, you know, some merit in that. It's a choice. It's like an unconscious choice in some sense to put on this ugly armor to keep people away and keep you safe. But, um, you know, by keeping people away, you suffer. You know, because like human beings are meant to. Yeah. Um, we're not meant to to be little islands alone. And you'll love this. This is so off topic. But the guy I was on the phone to whenever I came out of the car there, we literally had, and this is a, this is a 30-second segment, we were talking about community. Mm. Um, something that I have not told you is that I had corona since the last time we met. Oh, shit, okay, wow. I was waiting to tell you on mic so Damn. I get an honest reaction. Uh, so I'm, I'm out of like, you know, it's been like two weeks plus two days, so like, you know, 16 days. Yeah. Like, so I'm in the clear. Um, but and then we had two weeks of like hard quarantine, hard lockdown. Yeah. And like, it was so hard to go back to that place of lockdown. Yeah. After being through like several major ones, it was like re-traumatizing almost, you know? Wow. And it was like, bro, like, I can't believe we lived like this. Yeah. And like, it was only two weeks, which is a short period of time. But like, see coming back here yesterday to Ormabas, it felt like, like, literally taking a deep breath after being submerged underwater, just community, like just literally human yeah. interaction. And I was shared this with my friend and, and he said to me, he's he's a believer, he's a, he's like a really into his faith. And he was saying that in the first page of the Bible, in Genesis, like Adam is there, just Adam, all the animals, yeah. Eve's not even there yet. So Adam's in a quote unquote perfect world with a perfect God in a perfect environment. And the Bible literally says that Adam is lonely. Wow. <laughs> That's deep. That's how much we need community. Anyway, yeah. I'm just, no, just that's slipping that in there. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, like I found that that, in that like visual metaphor, whatever way that's coming, that black armor didn't suit and it wasn't effective. Mm. So I feel like I spent, like ultimately at that point, like I'd become so ill and like overweight and really physically sick and mentally ill um, and like was hiding from the world essentially, like working a little computer job, like six days a week, 12 hours a day, and then like going home and repeat. And mm. um, that didn't work. I was suffering. And then I got my health back. And developed uh, a whole story about getting my health back and wanting to help other people and really identified with this new story. But it was like, it was also armor. Just like 
shinier looking armor exactly so this is like the bronze fucking like (laughs) (laughs) shiny like uh greek type armor and but like it's still armor Mm. it's still like moses's like gold fucking bangles still rusty underneath well that's it and like it's attractive as well you know you put on you make a good story for yourself and people are like wow you did this thing you did that thing and you're bringing people close but it's still armor and those people can never touch you never touch the real you because you're coated in the armor only by taking off your arm your armor keeps you safe and keeps out danger but it also means it's only by taking off your armor do you become susceptible to bliss can you Mm. feel like the touch of a lover or like the touch of a physician holy smokes and like yeah, so the even the beautiful armor has to come off. You can surround yourself by people with your fucking bronze ab armor. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but until you just take that off. Your Leonidas 3000. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Until you take that final layer off, can you only ever feel the touch of another uh, human being? I like, had a really interesting image in my head there when you were speaking all that. Like I was just kind of like like just transported somewhere and it was like, I don't know, I'm sure there is a story like this out there. It's more of a type though rather than a specific story. Like I had in my head like like a young, like cocky knight like walking around the village yeah. in like really, really shiny, shiny like steel armor and he had like just done something cool, like killed a lion or something yeah. and like... Uh, the whole town was like amazed and like, whoa, like you're so cool. And like, you know, all the chicks were like, whoa, you know, like that sort of vibe. And then like in the corner, there's like an older guy that's like missing an ear (laughs) and he's not wearing his armor. And like the real, the people who know what's up, they're like walk over to him. They're like, dude, Scott, what's up? And this and this guy like is a proper dragon slayer. Yeah, like, he has been on like thirty quests, and he doesn't walk around town with his armor on because he's like, no, no, your armor is for fighting. Like <laughs> yeah. it's not for showing off. It's not for trying to get chicks. And like he has like body parts missing. Like he's got yeah. scars, and like he, he, he might maybe to like the general public is like a bit off putting. Like you don't really want to go near that guy. But the reality is he's like the realest dude you could hang out with because he actually is who he is rather than this like false pepped up version of himself, you know. That's a really beautiful like metaphor. And like that's so like, you know, you you do get this like idea of things coming to you and that really visual. Yeah. So I like I like full disclosure, like I have never had a psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. (gasps) Oh, no. Kick me. Unsubscribe to the podcast. (laughs) Subscribe to my podcast. (laughs) Come to the dark side. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the gray side. There's no such thing as black and white. Um, And my hesitation Mm. I'm a very like uh, experimental dude. Like I have done a lot of things in life because that's my temperament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this could be nonsense, but I've heard it explained to me what you described, that shift of, I'm going to really oversimplify stuff for the sake of time. Like mm-hmm. I've heard it described as like, let's say there's like a creativity scale. Mm-hmm. And let's say like most people are like a four out of 10. Uh with certain experiences you can shift that say from a four to a seven sure uh and psychedelic experiences is perhaps a way to do that Mm. uh it is argued that that shift is 
permanent like once you do that it's like so and that's what people talk about after these experiences like you know i, I think in a different way i see mm -hmm. in a different way by my birthright by birth like i'm probably an eight mm. like i get all that like without anything yeah and my fear is that it could tip me to a really high end of the scale mm. that would be maybe a little uncomfortable for me to deal with in my everyday life like I'm not saying I would turn into like a super prophet or something, but <laughs> maybe. But maybe, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. I'm like, like I, the, the way I think and like the level of creativity I have, and I do have, I do have beliefs about like creativity and depression yep. and all this sort of stuff. I think maybe we we talked about in the last episode, and I kind of just come to the place where I'm like, for this season of life where I'm currently at, I'm good. Hundred percent. Like I don't need to push that dial any further than it currently is and i was going to say that earlier but i was like it, it doesn't really make sense but what when you talked about being able to like kind of like see in metaphor mm -hmm. like i get that all the time like i i'm not even a really visual person like you know i'm not an artist i never knew how to you know i've never drawn mm -hmm. or really anything like that but i definitely like i see thoughts as almost like movie scenes or yeah like, uh metaphors or stories and i guess that's that's where like i I draw. It's a well I draw on for a lot of my writing and stuff. But yeah, very very interesting, and uh, I love that idea of the D. Robin. Oh man, we to see we to hear this note. Um, so I don't I don't I don't think uh, it's it's so subtle, and I'm probably just reading into it. So after he goes into the tent. So after he chases away the thieves that are trying to steal the camels of the yes. kids, Jethro's daughters i think jethro had seven daughters um he's taken to the tent and he's stripped completely naked oh yeah and he's scrubbed clean but he's scrubbed clean by the elders of the tribe that's right the old women literally like in every nook and cranny and that was he like even a, makes a wee joke, he makes a wee joke. Yeah. he's like you've cleaned every inch of me and then like there, there's like a really like suggestive hand movement and he's like Whoop! and he's like well, now you definitely have. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was a complete scrubbing mm. of his physical body. I just thought that was really, really... I mean, it took the metaphor to the extreme. Like, yeah. there was no reason for them to do that. And interestingly, yeah. Jethro barges in and, like, gives him a naked embrace. He embraces him ah. exactly for who he is. And that's probably the first time in his life Moses got that. Bro, that just came to me. That is so sick. Oh, that's so good. None of us fucking armor on that. Oh. Like, yeah. And he was touched. He was touched. Yeah. Like, literally, like, and then there's that cute wee moment where, like, the young daughters are, like, giggling, like, yeah. oh, my dad, he's so crazy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, literally, he was embraced with none of the shell on him. And yeah. I love, like, Jethro, like, so as a kid, in my head, this Jethro sequence, like his whole time when he spent in Midian, I don't know if they're actually in Midian, but I think they are Midianites, uh, is like 40 minutes of the movie. And in reality, it's like 10 minutes. Mm. It's so short. But when I think about the Prince of Egypt, I think about three things. I think about the crazy genocide dream sequence. Yeah. I think about Jethro. Mm. And just the warmth, like the father's warm and yes, is so rich. Good male archetype in Good that movie. Good male archetype. 
And I think about Ramsey's son dying. Yeah. But we'll get there. But Jethro, like the color. He's massive as well. He's (laughs) huge. He's the biggest dude ever. Yeah. He's played by a guy called uh, Danny Glover. He's in loads of stuff. Like if you read his his list, it's crazy. Interestingly, it's uh, Childish Gambino's dad, Donald Glover. Oh. Yeah, super weird connection there. Uh, And, you know, Danny Glover in real life is this large black dude, like big, strong voice, yeah. really, really like <laughs> awesome. Like you're kind of like, whoa, I, like I am naturally attracted to that sort of like type. The singer for Jethro, tiny, tiny white dude. Really? It's the most, <laughs> it's the strangest wow. thing. Like I saw, like I watched like um, a concert performance yeah. of the guy doing the Jethro song. And he's just like this really small dude and he's got lungs on him like an absolute rhino. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. As it, that was my favorite song. For yeah? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I it. think it's the best lyrics in the whole movie is that song. It's so – it's probably one of the deepest parts. It's poetry. Yeah. It's like ancient wisdom in a song. Yeah. It's so wise. Oh, mate. It's uncomfortably wise. It is like if you could get someone to take a message from this movie and embody it and that'll change their life. Like mm-hmm. it's probably the idea of that song where like it's like it's all about the big picture basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like it, and again it's it's so like this it, it is almost le- it would leave you lost for words. Like this song encapsulates the movie as well. It does. You know, the it's kind of about letting go of the small egoic self and like being in faith to more. Yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> Should I just read the song? I'm just gonna read the song. Oh great, great What's idea. What's it called? It through Heaven's Eyes, maybe? That'll get me there. You'll It'll find it. Okay. And the voice, like his voice is so deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what what I was just thinking about when you were talking there was um like Jethro, like you said, as like a positive male figure, yeah, like as a male father in the story, yeah. versus Moses's like tra- traumatized, yeah, yeah, exactly. Egyptian pharaoh, you know, yeah, uh, and that warmth, like uh, there's so much coldness to Father Pharaoh, yeah, and if you even look at them visually, they are the complete opposite, yeah, like literally the complete opposite, which is very very interesting visually. So big Jethro song is. A single thread in a tapestry, though its color brightly shines, can never see its purpose in the pattern of the grand grand design. And the stone that sits on the very top of the mountain's mighty face does it think it's more important than the stones that form the base. So how can you see what your life is worth or where your values lie? You can never see through the eyes of man. You must look at your life. Look at your life through heaven's eyes. And then there's that amazing like dance, la 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 sequence, which is epic. Great. A lake of gold in the desert sand is less than a cool, fresh spring. And to one lost sheep, a shepherd boy is greater than the richest king. Very alchemist vibe there. Yeah. Uh, Some alchemist vibes in this movie. Yeah, yeah, true. I don't even want to open that can, but (laughs) that's a little teaser for for, for people in the future. This is the bit I think you were, that really hit you. If a man loses everything he owns, has he truly lost his worth? Or is it the beginning of a new and brighter birth? So how do you measure the worth of a man in wealth or strength or size? 
and how much he gained or how much he gave, the answer will come to him who tries to look at his life through heaven's eyes. And then the last verse, other than the, the courses, that's why we share all we have with you, though there's little to be found. When all you've got is nothing, there's a lot to go around. No life can escape being blown about by the winds of change and chance. And though you'll never know all the steps, you must learn to join the dance. Oh my God. Is it not last? That last verse is just like, that's everything. Do you know, like, that is literally, I feel like that's everything. That's all we talk about. Is that last verse? We just talk about it and like with different clothes on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but like, honestly, I'm so impossibly grateful that I've lived the life circumstances that I can hear those words and feel what I feel by hearing those words. Yeah. And my, like, I, I wish, I dearly, truly wish that everyone could listen to those words and feel what I feel. By the way, uh, no life can escape being blown about by the winds of change and chance. And though you'll never know all the steps, you must learn to join the dance. Gorgeous. Unreal. It's so Absolutely good. Absolutely gorgeous. It's so good. That's so wise. Yeah. Like, it's one of those things that you hear and you're like, fuck, I wish I'd thought. Yeah, <laughs> even though it's the exact opposite of that, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's your Ramesses poking out. <laughs> yeah. It's like the exact opposite of the idea. Yeah, so it's yeah. like I want to. Be, oh man, yeah, what a trip! <laughs> Such a good song as well. So many beautiful things to do visually here. Mm. Um, I love the bit. So that line where he says, "Like when you've got nothing." When you have nothing, there's plenty to go around. It's Moses with the empty bowl playing yeah, with one yeah. of the daughters. And then he opens his hands and like all the fruits in his hands. Like just like so many nice things. They also so sneakily <clears throat> and very convincingly like give you the Moses love story in this song. Like yeah, at the yeah, start yeah, of the yeah. song, Moses and Sephora hate each other. Yeah. At the end of the song, they're married. Yeah. Like, and they do it pretty convincingly. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I, I buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it's so good. And that like he is Jethro's like really he's like putting them together, you oh, know? Yeah. He's like yeah. he's the Cupid in this as well. Yeah. yeah, but the 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 healing Moses experiences off a tender father's heart. And how Moses has to go away from his place of origin to experience that healing. Yeah. And this is the big bit for me, right? This is my big reveal for this movie. He has to go back to Egypt. Yeah. So this is where, this is where I will inject some of myself. Mm. I have come from an Egypt, <clears throat> as all of us have, like of suffering and pain, like a lot of physical health issues when I was younger, actually. It's so interesting, like just as when you were sharing, like, because I've heard your story loads of times, but it was the first time where I was like, I'm like relating. I'm like, oh my word, like we have a similar path. <clears throat> like when I was 11, like I got really sick and I was in P7, you know, formative years, yeah. as you know. And I... uh was literally bedridden for like six months. Wow. Like too weak to climb stairs, like all like physically in a really bad place. That springboarded me into the world of like mental struggle. Mm. So that's where depression came into my life for the first time, was suicidal at that age, like had like an overdose attempt and all this kind of crazy stuff. 
um, and then continued a long journey that really, if I'm honest, took me through to 18. So you're talking like a seven-year journey, very biblical. Seven, oh, yeah. You know, perfect. <laughs> very poetic. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot to unpack kind of in those years. But then I left and I had to leave. You know, my parents got divorced during that time. Mm-hmm. We had... Uh, we fostered as a family and so I lost brothers and sisters, foster brothers and sisters. A real season of pain, a real season of loss. Uh, and I left and I went to the exotic lands of Midian mm. and I met Jethro and I fell in love and I experienced loads of healing. Mm-hmm. But then I had to come back. And... That's its own kind of hero's journey of coming back to Northern Ireland. But in some ways, I have a sense that in this stage of life now, where I currently am, I'm in Midian. Like, I'm in a really good place. Mm. I'm rebuilding and restoring and finding healing. And there is a little bit of a reluctance in me where it's like, yeah, I don't need to go back to Egypt. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, don't, I don't actually know. And that's why I'm still a Midian. Yeah. Because I don't know what my next Egypt is. Sure. I have ideas, but I've got nothing concrete. You know, it's not time to hop on the camel just yet. But so I am really leaning into the season and enjoying the season. But if I'm honest, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, it takes so much courage to leave the comfort and the joy of Midian to go to Egypt, Mm. to go and face whatever that dragon is. And there's this amazing scene, and I never saw it, you know, as a kid, where it's after the burning bush. Mm -hmm. Moses runs home and starts telling his wife, Mm -hmm. and his his wife sits down in the tent and puts her hands on her face Mm. and starts to cry because she's like, she knows what this means. Like she knows we're going to have to go to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And in this story, like in the film story, like um, amazing lair for her character because she escaped Egypt. So even for herself oh, yeah, personally, yeah, yeah, yeah. she has to go back to the place where she was enslaved. Mm-hmm. And the cost, like it was just so real. And again, like being married, like and having like a, a long relationship now, like and having a kid, like in the biblical narrative, they had kids in Midian, so they were bringing their kids back to Egypt as well, or to Egypt for the first time, which is another layer, but the filmmakers can't do everything because Mm. it's such a complex story. They cut, and I think the places they cut, they cut very well. Mm. But that was just like, I felt that very heavy on me, where it's like the decision they made to be obedient to this God, to go to Egypt. Mm. And what Moses said is there's this beautiful scene where Jethro is outside playing with the the young girls, like goofing around, like doing some classic Jethro stuff. Classic Jethro. <laughs> Even though he's in the mood for like seven minutes, in my head he's there for 40 minutes. I love you know? him, like, yeah. Um, and Moses, like, they're looking at that. And he says, like, my people don't have that. Yeah. My people are currently in slavery. My people don't have a hope for a future. They don't get to Jeffro about with their their kids. Mm. And that's why we have to go back. And I just got chills. Like, I got chills looking at that and thinking about that. And just like, bro, like, again, like, this is a bit messianic, but like, who are your people? Mm. Like, who are the people that you're here to serve? Like, who are the people that, like, you do this journey for? Mm -hmm. And like, again, like we said at the start about Moses, 
it's not actually your story is not actually about you. Mm-mm. Your story is about what you bring to the tribe, what you bring to the to the people, you know, to your people that you specifically are here on this earth to serve. And I just think that was like this is a kids movie. I was <laughs> like, bro. <laughs> Just tripping. Yeah. So, if you've anything to say on that, give it to me. If not, give me your burning bush. <laughs> <laughs> Pass the bud. <laughs> You'd probably get the sense of this conversation so far that uh, that's already been. And funny that you should say that as well. Like, this is, I can't remember if we touched on this before, whether it was on a previous podcast or like in between. I know what you're going to say. You, you said it off mic, but I want you to say it on mic. Yeah, so there's this idea, um, and you know, I can't even remember. I think it was like an Israeli scholar who put forward the idea that the burning bush was like an acacia tree, and which is rich in like dimethyltryptamine, which is like uh, you know a strong psychedelic, awesome. a strong hallucinogen, and. Um, I really don't know the ins and This is not a widely accepted idea, but it seems like at least a possibility that given my own experiences, <laughs> um, you do absolutely feel like you're in communication with something bigger than yourself. Yeah. You feel like you're in receipt of like wisdom that feels like almost not your own and there's a million ways to look at this it's like stuff coming out from your unconscious or and then really if all things are one thing then is that also another way of look you know words are kind of meaningless at this stage whether this is the word of god or whatever sure um and what is god but the i am (laughs) well exactly yeah which is uh, we're gonna get deep into here but um yeah, that um, Moses may have been having a psychedelic experience mm-hmm. where he receives a message <clears throat> to go back to his people and serve. Um, and uh, again, I have to be very uh, cautious about like lining my own life up with this too much. But I went, it's okay. I'm Moses and you're Moses and everyone listening to Moses <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're doing the thing, guys. We're doing it. That's okay. We can do it. That's okay. We can do it. Permission. Permission granted. You know, I I became very ill and went out to Peru. And, you know, this was like a really seminal part of my journey and getting my health back. But out there in Peru, I had basically like the burning bush moment, like Mm -hmm. in a psychedelic experience, it being very clear that you have you were told that you were going to be physically ill for the rest of your life. And at this point you're not physically ill anymore. Mm. You've been granted this, like what felt like nothing short of a miracle. Yeah. But you, with that comes the responsibility for you to go home and help other people. It's a great word. Responsibility you just used. Uh, Yeah. And there's even added depth to that because uh, I love that. This is a Gabor Mate thing as well. Um, Responsible, response, able, you're able to respond to these people. Gabor. I know. Gabor never misses. He never misses. Oh, bro. Um, so, you know, you're able to respond to the needs of your people. Go home. And what the shaman literally said to me is go be the medicine in the world. Woo! You come out here, you receive the medicine. Now you go be the medicine in the world. Dude. <laughs> you go be fucking Moses and go back to Egypt and create Dash and Splash. <laughs> Crazy. Like, in our first episode, 
I talked, we talked about like going into the dark places mm. and I shared how like an area of my life where I like very deliberately said, nope, in this area, I will stay in Midian forever mm. is social media. Whereas you've, and I, com- I, I listened back to it, like I, I commended you for your courage to stay in the social media universe. And I thought that that's an interesting tie-in of like Midian versus Egypt and the importance of going back. Back to Gabor, I'm so glad you brought him up because I literally would have forgot about it. So what's interesting about this bush is that it's on fire, mm. but it's not burning. Whoa. So it doesn't get burned up. And Gabor Mate, the book I have read from him is In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, mm-hmm. his book about addictions. And he talks about the difference between addiction and passion. Wow. And he talks about two flames, one that consumes and one that creates. Whoa. And passion is a flame that creates and addiction is a flame that consumes and destroys. One builds up and gives, like you you imagine in your head now, like a torch mm-hmm. passing a flame on to another torch and this torch bearer goes home and brings fire to his community and heat and the ability to cook. You know, that's a that's a really positive force of fire versus going and burning the whole jungle down. And like, I just love that. Like, I, I there's so much of the burning bush. And it's, this is a story I've heard since I was probably one. Like, wow. I mean, my whole life. And I, there's not really much I know about it, if I'm honest. Like, so much of it. And I'll ask you a few questions. Like, why did God ask Moses to take his shoes off? Like, is that just back to the D. Rubin we were talking about? Because he mm-hmm. says, like, you're standing on holy ground. Yeah. But I just, I, I've always, my whole life, I've just been like, what a strange thing to say. Yeah, maybe, like, he was way ahead of the curve on this grinding thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, bro, barefoot running is the, yeah. is the stuff you need to get into. Bring this to my people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but you're right, though. It is an odd thing. I, but I find those things fascinating, and I guarantee you there's something really significant in it. Hang on. Let me, let me consult my notes. Yeah. Um, what else do I have on this? Oh, mate classic hero's journey stuff mm-hmm. here's a quote from Moses you've chosen the wrong messenger <sighs> like refusal. The, the refusal of the call is yeah. big so we really enjoy that uh, yes here's a little esoteric thing for you mm-hmm. so how Moses was led to the burning bush in this movie <laughs> was by a lost sheep yeah oh whoa yeah I mean, I, just to take it to the next level like the parable there's a parable Jesus gives in the New Testament about leaving the 99 sheep to pursue the one. Oh wow and I just thought it was interesting how like Moses's revelation was brought off the back of going after the one mm. and disregarding the majority if that makes sense there's just there was a lovely complexity there. <laughs> Haven't cracked it, but there's something kind of turning in my head where I'm like, ooh, I like I like what they did there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like a really beautiful moment that like that should take. I'm mean, you. You really just tripped me out with the barefoot thing, <laughs> to be honest. Because like, and this like is a very tenuous thing, and like a big part of a very current healing experience for me has been more regularly walking barefoot Mm. and like it seems like almost silly to to 
to try and create significance out of this. But there is something to that that I don't believe we're going to like unpack in this <laughs> in this podcast. But even if it's just the really like, even if there's no logic to it specifically, and even if that's just for me within me to be a feeling of like, I don't need to know what this is with my mind. Yeah, yeah. That there's something significant to that and to feel meaning. Like, you could, meaning is something that's felt in the body. Yeah, that's right. And you don't have to bring your analytical mind into it. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's something in that on the level that, that affects people on the level of feeling. I don't know, but uh, I, I'm fascinated by that now. And I'm, it feels like it's something I'm going to Google later, <laughs> see yeah. what other scholars' ideas yeah, are. Yeah, like it, it's interesting to have a think about it. Like I'll speak slightly to what you're talking about, and I'll I'll really push hard on the Northern Irish button here. So I think my experience is a, a lot of people's experience here, where we our culture kind of has a thing against bare feet. Yeah. Like, you grow up and your granny's like, put your socks on, you're going to get a cold. Mm. Or like, you know, what are you doing running around the house with no, with no socks on? It was like, if my, if, if my uh, childish toes, like, touched a cold tile, I would be struck dead instantly. <laughs> yeah. Like, that was the belief. And I think, like, I don't know if it's a real farming thing. Like, my granny was a potato farmer. Her family was a potato farmer. Like... Maybe it was just like, you know, the draft, you know, the same reason they're obsessed with drafts yeah. in the house, you know, shut that door that you let the draft in as if like the draft is like the plague. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know if there's like some sort of link there, but I think like what I can say and just, you know, let's just take a big drink of esoteric juice. Mm. Like, mm -mm. Mm. <laughs> is that salt in there? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Um, I think Northern Irish people, Irish people in general across the whole island are quite uncomfortable with their own bodies. Oh, yeah. Like, if you look at the Midians in the Jethro scene, there's a, like, the dancing yeah. is amazing. And I love, like, how Moses is, like, really awkward and, like, can't yeah. dance and, like, you know, he's, he's shy and he's clunky. Like, Northern Irish people at weddings, like, we're terrible dancers. Oh, yeah. Um, most people get lit and then get turned up and then that's when they can dance. And it's, it's a bit of a meme. It's not, no one's really dancing seriously. Yeah. It's like piss take dancing. Yeah. Okay. Whereas like you go to like, like Rwanda where I was for three months and it's like dancing is like part of life. Yeah. And there's like a fluidity and a comfort with their own skin, their own body mm. that I think in some ways is loosely connected with our very like, <gasps> put your bare feet away, like keep your armor on, like hold yourself close, like don't let loose. Um, I think in general, we're not a very affectionate culture. Mm -hmm. And in my head, don't ask me why, all those things that I've said are connected. Just because, again, somewhere like Rwanda, incredibly affectionate, you know, mm -hmm. like with families, with friends, with work colleagues. Like I had work colleagues, like some of my like male Rwandan managers would like walk down the road with me hand in hand. Huh. And that was really like, especially at that time in my life, like just coming from like hyper masculine Northern Ireland was like, that was a really important moment for me because mm -hmm. I was like, bro, this is really challenging. Like lots of stuff in my head right now about like male relationships and about like male affection and male love. And like, I think as a culture, we are very prudish. Oh yeah. <laughs> like in that way. And I think there's something to do with the bare feet. That's a real ramble, but there you go.
No, like I feel like you're onto something, but I also feel like there's this other thing of like not all that long ago as well, like poverty and like bare feet would have been a sort like mm. can't afford shoes. Mm. So like mm. put your shoes on like that, like that we've got a hangover from like yeah. how like bad that must have felt to be not able to for- afford shoes. Wow. I remember interviewing a, a playwright from here called Martin Lynch and he talked about how there were there was one pair of shoes for like his he had a lot of brothers and sisters <clears throat> i don't know how many but a lot and they would constantly fight with each other whose turn it was to use the shoes so they could go out and play football damn bro that's the next level and if it wasn't martin himself he t- he told me that story but yeah crazy it makes me think also, like one time I, I did this like little social experiment to see how I would feel and decided this was years ago when I was like really probably first exploring the barefoot stuff and like just getting into running like with uh, like minimalist footwear, like sandals and um, decided just to like go and do my Tesco shop barefoot <laughs> just to see. Oh, that's a great social experiment. That's <laughs> fantastic. I... <laughs> really naively like at this point in my life felt like I've worked through a lot of shit like this will be no problem yeah yeah walked in and felt like I just felt little naked boy felt horrible yeah and felt like people looking at me and felt ashamed and wow didn't do it again tell you that much <laughs> very interesting to come to it that is very interesting yeah you know I don't know like lots of thoughts firing off here like you know why are the hobbits bare feet Oh, interesting. You know, like, wh- why Why is their big thing that they don't wear shoes, you know? And why are they, like, the pilgrims of that narrative? And, you know, there's a hardness to their feet. Their feet adapt. There's something in there as well. Again, what that thread is, we'll, we'll do a, a Hobbit foot special. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's, like, something to, like, like, it is your point of connection with the earth most of the time. Mm. You know, maybe there's something to that, that it's your connection to something bigger than yourself. Wow. And like, maybe that's a stretch, but generally like we amble about on two feet as humans. And like, this is your point of contact with the bigger whole. I actually got another one, just as you said that, uh, vulnerability. Because yeah. in the desert Moses was in, obviously stony, rocky, yeah, like... He was taken off. I guess it's back to the protective layer stuff we talked about, but like, you know, it's a real like intimacy and a and a vulnerable vulnerable posture yeah. towards this this god of the his ancestors, you know. Yeah, and also like something I'm curious about at that part where like God says something like it's holy ground. Yeah. Why more so than like that challenges me because I my personal belief is every every sure. atom is holy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why how can that be more holy than somewhere else? Like I'm curious on that as well. I'm not saying there's no right or wrong. I'm just curious what was yeah. meant by that. Again, I'll just give you my initial thought fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, really interesting scene later on whenever Moses is standing in the Nile after it was turned into blood. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed this. The little patch around Moses was still water. Oh, I didn't notice that, no. Uh, I I don't know what that means, but it, it's almost like there's this, like, holy force field. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I don't know if, like, maybe just, like, around the burning bush itself is, like, super holy because, mm. like, there's this spirit there, you know? 
Hmm. Um, let's see. Oh, just a little bit of like biblical trivia. Hmm. So he talks about taking his people to the promised land. God does, the bush. Hmm. Um, he talks about the land flowing with milk and honey. Mm-hmm. I was this years old whenever I actually figured out what that meant. Because mm-hmm. I've heard it my whole life, milk and honey, land flowing milk and honey. And I always, literally, I always went, mm. because I always thought of like Kinder. Like Kinder has this little <laughs> logo with like honey and like a glass of milk. And okay. I was like, mm, delicious. Like I think, I think that there's probably like bigger like metaphors to it. I think it's just really simply like lots of cows mm-hmm. and lots of flowers. Oh, right. Okay. Like agriculturally successful. Like it's going to be bountiful. It's not going to be like this dirty desert where it's hard to grow things it's going to be a place where like there's lots of livestock there's lots of like (laughs) nature uh and that would be very appealing to like a hebrew slave that is working in to quote the first song burning sand you know that's yeah i like that so that was kind of fun uh the voice of god it's impossible to pick this up but once you know it'll change your life uh was voiced by moses Oh, right. Wow. Like the... The actor, Val Kilmer. Not actual historical movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the budget was so high. <laughs> there was some crazy divination going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, like... So he was... Moses' yeah. voice was God's voice. And, interestingly, all of the cast mm-hmm. whispered underneath it. So everybody was the voice of God. Whoa. I knew you'd like that. That is incredible. Yeah. And what a, a choice. What a choice. A fun little tidbit in that is they originally didn't want anyone to be kind of like the strongest voice, uh-huh. but it sounded like super demonic. I bet you it did. It yeah, super, super weird. Oh. So they, they then opted for, I think, the very tasteful choice of having Moses Moses do the voice of God. Yeah, like It's kind of this idea of like it's the internal voice as well, which is very tasty. There's some nice... There's some nice nuggets in that, <laughs> that small choice. Comes back to me for sure about this, like, I mean, again, getting to the point where words aren't really doing any justice to what we're talking about. But, um, you know, for example, in like the psychedelic experience, whenever you are being, when you feel this like communication of like a deeper idea that's coming up from your unconscious that you know, you're not aware of. And some people would consider that to be the voice of God, but mm-hmm. it's like, it's, but also you're unconscious. Mm-hmm. So it, it it is in your voice. Mm-hmm. It is in Moses's voice. Yeah. <sighs> That's just, pretty wild. So much, so much going on there. Um, I try to think like, what happens next? Like they march into Egypt. I thought that scene of them riding into Egypt was tough. Uh-huh. Like where Moses sees his people. Yeah. You know, and he's like, uh, again, a little bit messianic, a little bit like Jesus riding in on a donkey sort of vibes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I love like Ramesses in the, in the scene. It's yeah. just amazing where like, he's like, he's become Pharaoh. Yeah. But he melts and there's that boyishness and that lovely brother relationship yeah. where he sees Moses. And it's so heartbreaking. Because you see Moses' face when he's like walking in or riding into Egypt. Mm-hmm. His face is like, his face is full of fire. Like mm-hmm. he's, it's so full of the burden 
that he knows that he's carrying into this place. Mm-hmm. And when he sees Ramesses there, like you just see it on his face. It was just a moment where he goes, Ramesses! And he's like, Pharaoh. And I thought it was really interesting that like nobody comments on the death of his Pharaoh dad. It's, oh, yeah. He, it's like... That it's like that person was dead to him like so long ago wow. and he doesn't even acknowledge like oh dad died like I'm so sorry brother like are you feeling okay yeah, like yeah. it's literally just like oh my goodness Ramesses is Pharaoh now mm. um, then there's that scene with the snakes oh yeah wow what was your what was your reaction to that this is actually relevant to the conversation I was having earlier with <clears throat> my friend Kat that you know I'd mentioned and um. yeah and like even around like talking about this like plant medicine stuff where like the vision of snakes is very 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 common mm. um, that's supposed to be like a real like primal human like deep in our like DNA almost is like the fear of snakes yeah. and like protecting our babies from snakes <clears throat> you know that's, that's ultimately what it all boils down to I've heard people say yeah, it's fascinating. Like, even I've heard that go f- as far back, like, well beyond, like, Homo sapien, like, to our, like, more primate ancestors and stuff. Mm. It's always been the enemy. <laughs> yeah, right. And then I heard this really interesting idea. You know the way, like, the dragon myth appears in all different cultures? Yeah. So the um, the things that would have attacked our primate ancestors would have been snakes. They would have been... Um, like eagles and stuff would have come down from the sky and like taken the the young yeah and i think was the other one like big cats so like the dragon is a pleasing mix of all three it's It's a winged snake lion amalgamation (laughs) yeah evil itself exactly like all our predators are like all into one and like that's in our like ancient ancient pre-human psyche um, and like in the common like <laughs> modern landscape, I mean like in the podcast world, like when someone talks about a dragon, mm. like everyone knows what's going on. As in like they use it as in the metaphorical sense of like you know I, I had this, like it was a real like yeah. dragon in my own personal life. Everyone's like mm, yeah yeah yeah. It's just funny. It's so it's still so part of our vocabulary, even though we're so far removed from the physical side. You know. Yeah. So interesting that. Um, God should present himself as a snake. Yeah. Um, and like this starts to go into another tangent. God presents himself as like the, like the, the enemy to humans. Yeah. Um, and then also later on, like kills children and like does all this stuff that would be considered evil. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like goes to war against Egypt. God goes to war against Egypt, and like that's wild. And then presents himself as a snake, which is presi- like presumed to be an evil animal. Mm-hmm. And especially in the biblical tradition, right? It's like the ultimate evil. Yeah, I don't know what I really like. Again, that's one of those things where it's like it's kind of it's like a burning bush thing to me. It's just such a mystery. I'm like, like if I was an author writing the Bible as a story. What a strange choice. You'd never choose to do that. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's so, I don't know. It's so, um, um, and did you catch, I, I don't know if the movie made it made very clear. Maybe that was kind of part of the child protection thing. Did you see what, Mo, what Moses' snake did to the other snakes? Did you catch that? 
I don't think it was so. kind of off screen. So you see it in their shadows, and this this happens in the biblical narrative. So oh, like to start off with, like the two magicians uh, was Steve Martin. All oh, right, cool. <laughs> and Martin Short. And they are like, they've done loads of like comedy duo stuff. Right, there. okay. And I love the comedy relief. They were that good. They bring. Yeah, yeah. But like also was not expecting to sit through like a chanting of all the Egyptian gods. That this was kind of cool, yeah. It was not so badass. Yeah. Like I was listening to it in the kitchen again today and I was like, bro, like this was not on my list. Like to literally have this like very spiritual chant of all the names of these Egyptian gods. It was cool. It was so like... Rah, meek. And then literally, yeah. so very heavy, very strong vibes. And then the ultimate like comedy ice break. He comes in, he's like, so you think you have friends in high places? <laughs> and I'm like, who wrote that? So Give good. them a raise. So but good. I think this is where they really start to introduce. And I'm not sure if the movie does a great job at underscoring this enough. They do it here pretty well. It's actually like, the God of the Hebrews going to war mm. with the gods of Egypt. And I think that is maybe a more helpful way to frame it. Mm-hmm. Or it's a, it's an interesting key that could maybe unlock parts of the story for us. Because here you have the magicians like calling on, literally calling on the names of all the gods. Mm-hmm. And then they... And I thought that I always thought this was crazy as a kid. The fact that they turned their sticks into snakes. Mm-hmm. Like again, if this was a classic like good versus evil story, you'd be like, ha, the Egyptian gods suck, and their little pieces of wood didn't do anything. Yeah, but yeah. it was like, oh no, no, no! Like these snakes came. Yeah. But the really interesting bit that I was teasing you with earlier is that Moses's snake literally gobbles up and devours whole oh, shit. the other two snakes. Wow. Uh, I think that would, like literally they, they did it in such a subtle way. Like you see the shadows of the snakes and you see Moses' snake. And then it's it's so funny, like Moses' snake like slides back to him like all fat and smug. Oh, and then, like, shit. Stands up. But what I thought was interesting about that scene is like nobody saw it. Mm. Like the magicians didn't see it the crowd didn't see it mm-hmm. and it was like a bit of a performance and everyone at the end was clapping and roaring and laughing for the Egyptian magicians and meanwhile Moses' snake just slides over doesn't say a word back into Moses' hand Damn. I just thought that was an interesting metaphor of how like sometimes you like we in the West especially can get so wrapped up in like the showman yeah. or like the influencer who's like all the lights, all the bang, all the pop, all the smoke, all the noise. And like, meanwhile, the people who are really doing stuff are sometimes the people who are like very quiet. Back to that little image. That's what I was exactly going to say. The, the knight yeah. and the dragon slayer sitting in the corner. Like yeah. things are not always as they seem. And sometimes the louder someone shouts mm-hmm. actually is, is maybe, well, did we say something in the last podcast or was it? Did I dream that? Oh, no, I think it was awareness, <laughs> Anthony DeMello. And it, he was, like, talking about, like, an old mystic saying where it's, like, those who say do not know and those who know do not say. Whoa. And he's, like, if someone says they're enlightened, yeah, rock far away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's that sort of idea. Um, but I thought, thought that was a very interesting scene. And then... Literally just um, the the dynamic between the brothers, just so hard. You know, I can no longer hide in the desert while my people suffer 
at your hands. Yeah, just calling it out. You know, he just, he, like, he went in guns blazing. And uh, they did a really good job at showing Ramesses, like, being intention. Mm. And then there's just, like, amazing moment where it's, like, Ramesses' face shifts. Mm-hmm. And he picks up his pharaoh hat. Yeah. And he puts it on and he straightens himself out. And from that moment, you get, like, but hardcore balls to the walls, Ramesses, with no empathy. He's, he, like, turns into stone from that point on. Interesting. Uh when held up against Moses taking off his armor and stuff and then you have this scene where like Ramses reinforces it it's like I'm putting more shit on (laughs) oh dude and you know what triggered Ramses there was one thing the ring Moses kept the ring on and that was the last bit of his Egyptian self he gave it to his brother it was a gift that Ramses gave to him he made him like what was it in the film like the chief architect architect or something like that and that was the moment that broke Ramesses, and it was always the it was the final bit of Egyptianness that Moses shed. Oh, is there anything in that as well? The fact that he made him like the architect as well, like that's a very interesting thing in particular, like a, like a creator in a sense. There's something in my in the back of my skull here with Joseph, and Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and I think one of them became like a city planner of oh, Egypt or something. Interesting. Um, but that's all I've got. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's another rabbit hole. <laughs> so this is where, for me, this is where the movie starts to fall apart a little bit. Mm. Uh, they've I've, Honestly, up until this point, masterpiece. I would not change anything. I think it is just like, it's the fact that human hands created this. <laughs> like I, I'm in awe. Like I really am. Here, then, you have, like, the staff in the Nile. Mm-hmm. So the, the the Nile being turned into blood. And that was really significant because it killed all the fish. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, their main source of water. They had to then go and dig inland to get, like, other f- sources of water. Mm-hmm. Um, and Moses delivers the line, like, think of all the innocent people who will suffer from your stubbornness and pride. And that's back to what you said about the ego self. Yeah. But then we have this like musical montage, like, and the 10 plagues just delivered. And like, just that was the one moment where it felt like, remember we said earlier where we said like there was no bits you would cut or there was no kind of like montages. Mm. Like, I felt like there was like, like little character development or little story development. It was just like, and I'm actually glad that they didn't spend like 40 minutes on the plague. So yeah. I appreciated that it wasn't like 10 minutes on the first plague, 10 minutes on the, I liked that it was bam, 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 bam. And I liked, do you remember there was like the musical standoff between like Moses and Ramesses? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they were kind of like, I can't, I can't really remember that bit too much, but like there was just so much going on there. Yeah. What they didn't show or what they didn't do a good job showing. So you have the river turning the blood. Then you have the magicians mm-hmm. like doing oh, their yeah, they, wee bit wee in fake the bowl. One, yeah. Their wee fake one. And that's where you see their power start to kind of like slip a wee bit. But Ramesses is like, oh no, look, they've done it too. Yeah. For some reason, that wee bit was burned into my image as a kid. The magicians doing that in the bowl, I always just thought was so fun. Mm. I, I, just their wee, I was always like, what did they put in there? Oh, interesting. Like, like as a kid, you're like, whoa, that's so good. 
that's amazing. Like, what is Because <laughs> the snakes, you, there's no explanation for it. Yeah. Like, there's a big bang of light. Did they then switch a snake and put it in there? Sure. Or, I don't know. Um, but, the, you know, you're like, whoa, what, what like, dye was that or whatever? Uh-huh. But in the biblical narrative, you actually have a lot of interesting complexities between Moses and Pharaoh at this point. Hmm. So kind of each plague that comes, the magicians try to recreate it. And like, I can't remember exactly, but let's say the first four, they can do it. Hmm. And then like the fifth one comes and the magicians can't do it. They're like, they go to Pharaoh. They're like, we, we can't do this. And like Pharaoh's really angry. Mm-hmm. And then the sixth plague comes and then they're literally like, Pharaoh, this is God. Like, wow. Like we have to stop this. Yeah, yeah. Like they're freaking out. They're actually really afraid because they're like, we haven't seen power like this ever before. Yeah. And Pharaoh, he does double down. But every plague that comes, he goes to Moses and he begs Moses to make the plague stop. Wow. He goes to Moses and he literally is like, please pray for us. Like, please change this. And Moses is like, okay, if we if we remove this, will you let us go? And he's like, yes, 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 yes. And then as soon as the plague goes away, then he's like, I will never let you go. So yeah. there's a bit of that back and forward. But it gets to the point where like the Egyptians are like begging Pharaoh, like, please stop this. Mm-hmm. And they're listening to Moses. So like one of the plagues is like, I don't know, like hails, like big hail or something. Hail stones, yeah. And like literally, like Moses, like you need to bring your animals inside or they're all going to die. And Pharaoh's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And like Egyptians independently themselves go and like bring their animals inside because they don't want their animals to die. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a like, there's a split between the leadership and the like the nation itself. Yeah, yeah. And I just felt like for the for the dynamic between Moses and Pharaoh, I felt like that could have been explored a wee bit. For the wee dynamic between like, the Egyptian people and the Israelite people, I thought that could have been explored. One of the plagues was like all the, like, I don't know, like all the cows dying or something. Mm-hmm. And not none of the Jewish cows died. So all the plagues were only being afflicted on the Jewish, on the uh, Egyptians. Mm-hmm. It didn't touch the Hebrew people. I didn't think that was made very clear. Sure. Um, but this is skipping slightly. And this is the first time I've even known this in my whole life. I had to pause the movie at one point because in the desert, after they did leave, I saw a few Egyptian people like wearing like the classic oh, white Egyptian right. thing and like gold Egyptian kind of like breastplates yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I looked into it and there is a there is a like a pretty widespread theory that like there was a sizable amount of Egyptians that left with the Hebrew people. Huh. And I just thought that was very, very interesting. And again, on the other side of the Red Sea, there's literally a frame where, like, I saw two Egyptians in the background. And I was like, wait, what are they doing here? Yeah, so yeah. So I like, had to look into it. And I thought it was, like, that was interesting and perhaps maybe a little bit underexplored by the movie. But then they went hard for the angel of death. Oh, yeah. The final plague. That was, like, very interesting visually as well. Super interesting. Like, cool art. Like It gave me COVID vibes. It, it gave me, like, real, like, disease vibes. Yeah, but, like, something... Like, plaguey. Like, it was very, like, like ghostly. Yeah, ghostly is a good word. It wasn't, like... Because there's that... You know in the Metallica song? I don't know. I can't remember the title, but it's, like... Die by my hand. Yeah. I'm creeping across the land. Da, 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 da. So I think the origin story of that song is they were watching like the Exodus movie and uh-huh. were like stoned out of their heads and they saw this the angel of death scene. Yeah. And that's what that song's actually about. Um, but 
But in my head, it's very like the angel of death is like more like sword, like very like aggressive. This depiction was like so quiet, so sneaky, like so deathly and yeah. so eerie. It was just terrifying. Yeah. But yeah, the art was beautiful. Like the sky looked incredible. It was, and like that it came out of like some like weird Whoa. portal yeah, or it something. Like, it looked like a wormhole. I was like, yeah. Bro. Imagine that shit it was <laughs> out in the sky and like creeping across the land. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that's some wild. Yeah. Yeah. That was like dark. Yeah. That was really, really, really dark. <laughs> and some, one thing, something that I caught was actually so there was the scene where Ramesses was basically saying, like, I'm going to do what my father did. Like, I'm going to kill all the babies again. There's going to be a wheel in Egypt that's never been heard before. But where they're standing is beside the picture of the dream sequence with the crocodiles and the baby. And there's this moment where, like, Ramesses points and he's Mm -hmm. exactly in his father's shadow and they line up perfectly. (sighs) Yeah. And baby Ramesses, his son, is standing in between the crocodiles. Oh, and it was just this crazy, like, foreshadowing moment yeah. where it's like, they just showed, like, they just foreshadowed it, like, in such a creepy way of, like, what actually is going to happen here. Mm-hmm. There's so much in there. And the Bible talks, a, the Old Testament talks a lot about, like, generational stuff and, like, the sins of the father. And, like, mm. again, I don't really know what that means, but I was just getting, like, heavy vibes from that, like, watching it last night. There's something, I mean, like... <sighs> Maybe there's something. I think I like the idea of like a sin. Um, I remember hearing like it's possible to look at it through different translations as uh, a sin being like an archery term where it's like missing the mark. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like to to sin with your arrow is to miss the mark. Wow. And you can think of a sin as like, oh, I've sinned. I've just missed the point. Wow. I've just like missed the right path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've missed the aim of life. Yeah. And, um, you know, you could think of like generational trauma as well. Like somebody who sins, someone who continues to like miss the point and like mm. pass on their trauma. Maybe there's something in that, like the sins of the father, you know, like wow. you're taking on the trauma of your wow. your father. So I don't know enough about what the Old Testament says about that to go into any depth, but it's what kind of came to me from that. Crazy. There's like the way I think about sin is I think about sin as a form of death mm. where like, um, like, I don't know, like, let's try to make it like super practical. Like I have a really, really, really broad definition of sin. Like for, I, like in the tradition I was brought up in, it was like smoking a cigarette's a sin yeah, or like having a beer is a sin yeah. or like hitting your sister is a sin. It was like very clear. These are the rules. Very Ten Commandment esque. Like, sure. you can strike it off. Oh, there's forty sins for the day, or whatever it is. I like. I have such a broad term now, where I'm like, and this is again a no judgment statement for people listening. If I'm out with my daughter, and I say we're in the park, and she's looking at a squirrel, she's really excited about it. And I'm on my phone. Yeah. I think that's a sin. Yeah. Because I think there has been a small death that has happened there. Mm. Like a really small, like a fracture hairline death versus if I had him present in that moment, 
there's like a there's like life there. And the Bible talks about like the wages of sin being death. Mm. And later on, like in the Old Testament somewhere, like God begs the people to choose between life and death mm. and begs them to choose life. And that is like following the law because they believe that the law led yeah, yeah. to life and not following the law led to death. But I think like zooming it out on like more of a conceptual level, like it's more helpful for me to think about like, am I leaning into life or am I leaning into death? Is my actions or are my actions like leading to life or are they leading to death? And for me, that's what sin is. So mm -hmm. is smoking a cigarette a sin? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any moral uh, connection to is someone good or bad because they do an action. Mm -hmm. But I would say like, does eating McDonald's, is eating McDonald's every night for me a sin mm -hmm. to my own body? Is it leading me towards death or is it leading me towards life? So it's kind of like that classic like, just making better choices. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And for me, that's what the way is, you know? It's it's making better choices that lead to life on an individual level, on a family level, on a societal level, you know? And it really, I think that, like, lines up really beautifully with the idea of, like, a sin being, like, you're missing the point, mate. <laughs> yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. missing it. Yeah, stop fucking looking at your phone and, yeah. like, pay attention to it. All. And it's not, like, a judgmental thing I'm doing that for comedy relief but you know <laughs> um it it kind of is and like i think you, you used the word present as well in there as well like and and life true like a hundred percent truth and life and is all tied into presence i think and like being right here now yeah, uh, yeah I mean, right. jethro's just my hero <laughs> they should just call it jethro the movie right? yeah. he's like in it for seven minutes yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like to sin, I think you're just like f further removed from truth and presence. And like, yeah, I find that, um, yeah, I find that is a, because it's funny, isn't it? How like people will sit, talk about sin and a lot of biblical things, but actually don't, they don't know what they mean by that. Mm. So like, that's a sin. And if you really like, what do you mean by that? Like, they probably couldn't unpack it any further, but that's just bad. Yeah. So you literally have, like, put words to my lived experience. Yeah. Like, my path, like, the, what set me off on the journey, I suppose, was uh, smoking cigarettes a sin. Hmm. Why? Because it is. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, that's not enough. It's not enough. And I had to go and try to understand the why behind it. Yeah. And that's that's what you're talking about. 100% or set when somebody says like Jesus died to take away our sins what, what is you, that what do you mean what by actually that? is this because you don't know yeah they don't but that's the thing yeah. like in, in, in overly like prescriptive legalistic Christianity you've hit something so profound they don't actually know they don't you know and that's no disrespect like but it's so interesting how you can be so and in some ways, I find the more militant people are about something, mm -hmm. the more unsure they actually are about the cause. Mm. That's, that's a big statement. Oh, that's a big statement. <laughs> and so my curiosity also goes to here, like, maybe there's a way to, and this is a challenging thing as well, but maybe you, maybe for some people, it's enough to just have this like arbitrary rule where mm. they don't know. 
Yeah. And they don't know any better. And like maybe that's maybe that is enough for someone to live a better life. I think it's a personality trait. Like I can think of people in my head that are like ne- my nearest and dearest mm-hmm. you know, friends and family who they don't need to know the why. And then I have people like you in my life who won't sleep until they find out or they'll spend their whole lives looking for the why. For me... That's a temperament thing sometimes too, I think. Yeah, because I I feel like if you just take on some arbitrary rule, like how do you know if that's serving you? I suppose like only through direct lived experience. And maybe that's when someone <clears throat> could take on a rule, but they would have to like test it out. So it's yeah. like, is eating McDonald's every night for dinner a sin? Well, I'm going to eat McDonald's every night for like two weeks and just see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like shit afterwards. Yeah, it's yeah. like, guess that's a sin then. <laughs> why? I think why, like, where this all falls apart is because wisdom is proven by its results. Mm-hmm. And for so much of humanity, the results are in the future. Hmm. So take the McDonald's every night. You might only get the answer to that when you're 70. Mm-hmm. And that thing you're diagnosed with, you'll never actually know was it caused by the diet. Or would you have had that if you were like a fasting vegan monk? Yeah. You know? And that's where like there are things, some things we can get like short-term feedback that's helpful. But most of the time, like, you know, talk about parenting, talk about mm. relationship advice, like talk to me in 80 years and I'll mm. have a better idea of what worked, but I'll not actually know. I guess that's where like, and it's imperfect, but can give someone a way better idea. It's like where science comes in and here's like repeatable, mm. quantifiable Here's your dopamine system. Yeah, like, okay, so here you don't just have to be like, it's not just because it's some arbitrary rule to follow. It's because many people over, like, control, like, as best as we can understand and, like, studies, um, it seems to be very repeatable that this is a good rule to follow. Yeah. I think that's why you and I are so attracted to the... uh, the razor edge of science mm. that shows ancient wisdom of it being biologically true. Yeah. <laughs> that is because that's as close as something that feels like truth that you can get to. Yeah. Where it's like, I'm covering all the angles here. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've got like an Indian mystic that says this makes sense. I've got like a Harvard neuroscientist that says, yeah. this. my granny's telling me to do this. Like, I should probably drink a lot of water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Like, and that, but that's so much of what your work is, is that you find like the key pillars, like the key buttons you need to press that are pretty safe to press mm. uh, that will lead to a better life. And the reality is all they do is build a foundation for our, or create conditions mm. to experience healing or wholeness um, on this platform that you've made, you know, but that's, that's, um, that's a bit trickier. Mm. Anything else? on the prince hmm. well we did good there i think we did pretty good like we i think really we really all, we kind of touched on the end about a third of the way in yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. but yeah so there's a little bit of like dissatisfaction 
it feels like that Ramses is just left on the other side of the river all raging at the end. And then Moses is like, goodbye, brother. And mm-hmm. okay. Why do you think they chose to keep him alive? See, in the bit, I'm pretty sure, like, it's not 100% clear, but like, biblically and historically, it is accepted that Pharaoh died in the sea. Like, and actually, on the historical note, found a really interesting note that, like, the Pharaoh that they think was the actual Pharaoh during this time, like, something really niche, like, his tomb didn't have boats because he drowned in the. Like, symbolically, oh, it was because he drowned right. in the sea. Like, something real niche like that. Like, you need to actually fact check that, but. There was, like, a little historical, yeah. like, nod that, like, we think this pharaoh drowned. Um, and there was, oh, like... that's wild, that, isn't it? That same pharaoh, um, again, his, his name begins with M. There was, like, a famous historian of, at the time, like, noted that there was, like, a real shortage of gold after his death. Mm-hmm. And it's because, in well, one of the potential explanations is that in the narrative... Um, all the Egyptians gave their gold to the Israelites as they were leaving. Wow. So, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh, one little thing that I didn't say, I'd planned to weave this in a little bit smoother. So, during the Angel of Death scene, so I watched it on Amazon. Where did you watch it? Same. So, you know Amazon X-Ray thing? Have you ever seen that? Maybe I'm just a super nerd. Mm-hmm. They, they'll give you facts about the movie while you watch. Oh, I did run my mouse over it and saw that yeah. thing come up, but I didn't look up. So, this one was utterly useless. Like, it was so, I don't know who wrote them, but like it was just pop trivia about the actors, mm-hmm. like just stuff about their general lives, but like at really inappropriate times. So like during the middle of like the angel of death scene, uh-huh. like it came up and it said, Jeff Goldblum can wiggle his ears one at a time. <laughs> he did this on Conan Bryan on the Tonight Show. And then like another one was like, um, where was it? Like Sandra Bullock was a dancer and cheerleader in high school. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is just not the time or the place to do this, guys. There's Egyptian children dying on the screen. Yeah, right literally, <laughs> dude. Um, final thing I will say is the scene itself of the Red Sea is... Now, this is on Reddit, so this is sketchy. Mm-hmm. Uh the the Red Sea scene alone was almost half of the budget of the entire movie. Whoa. And someone else has said that it's a Japanese principle called Sakuga, which is where a scene takes up a quarter to half your studio's budget just so you can let your animators go crazy and make it look class. And they start talking about like Naruto and Dragon Ball Z for the very same thing. Mm. Apparently, like animators will just choose to go super hard on a really specific thing just to kind of flex their skill. It was really impressive. Dude, and like crazy. See whenever, like, I mean, I've heard the story of, like, parting of the seas and stuff, but I never imagined it in that way. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's cool. Like, that's way cooler than my imagination actually came up with it. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I really thought of. I think, like, just some, like, really basic-ass, like, square, <laughs> yeah. like, chunk of the sea taken out. Yeah. But it was cool because it went right. And, like, the there was, like, I can't remember if it was, like, lightning or something, but there was, you could see a whale. Yeah. In the background of, like, one of the yeah. walls of water. Yeah. and That was one of the things that really stood out to me as a kid. I remember cool. seeing the whale and being like, whoa. Yeah, it's epic. And then the big cyclone of fire as well. That was cool. So that was when <clears throat> the Hebrews were in the desert. God led them in, during the day with a pillar of smoke mm-hmm. or a pillar of cloud. And at nighttime, it turned into like a pillar of fire. Wow. 
So that was like their light that guided them through the desert. I'm pretty sure that was there for the 40 years they were in the desert, but I, I'm not sure. I don't actually know that that story overly well. Um, but I thought that was interesting because when they were then in the desert, they were kind of led by the elements. Oh, that's I thought you were kind of like that. that you know? Yeah, like a little bit of that, like natural intuition rather than like following a map or something. Yeah, yeah. like I, I thought that was kind of cool. And those things also protected them from the Egyptians at one point too. Mm. Um, again, something in there, but um, I think I think that's it. Prince of Egypt, Prince of Egypt. Look at your people, Moses. They are free. Wow. Hmm. And the pain of Moses at the end, like. Yeah. Like you said, the silent walk out of the, the cinema. Let's hope nobody's walking away from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay then. <laughs> but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And yeah, just want to say like massive thanks, one, for like the recommendation because, you know, I'm excited to see you know, this was so like enjoyable for me. I don't care who listens to it, to be honest. I just had a blast <laughs> just talking it out. But um, yeah, I'm already excited for the next one and uh, to see where we go with that as well. Yeah, dude. Like, I just I 100% just echo that back to you. Like, um, like, I was sitting last night watching this and I was just like, I'm so happy that I kind of had to do this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean? Because like, I don't think, like, I don't think I would have, I really don't think I would have sat down and watched it, like, just I for the sake. No. You know? And, like, I'm so glad that you hadn't seen it before. Oh, yeah. Because like, you're able to, like, see things and bring things and just react to things that are were, like, unexpected for me. Hmm. You know? Stuff that I didn't expect. Uh, random place to end. It made me think that, like, the... F- because I knew we were doing this, it made me watch it in a different way. Yeah. And like, I remember writing something like three years ago and it was like something like binoculars help me hear better. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's cool. And it was this idea of like, I I got struck by the middle aisle in Lidl and there was like these amazing binoculars that were like 10 pounds. I was like, okay, fine. I'll just buy them. And like, I went through like, it was probably over lockdown actually where I went through like a phase where like I would take them out in my walks and like we had moved to the countryside at this point. So like I had a lot more nature scenes going on than I did on the Donegal Road in Belfast. And, uh, you know, I would try to like look at things and, and whatever, or mainly birds. But I noticed this weird thing where if I carried my binoculars with me, my sense of hearing was heightened because I was listening out for things to point my binoculars up. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going to go with that, but it's way interesting, yeah. And, like, just this idea that, like, like because I knew we were doing this podcast, it, like, heightened my senses to this movie a lot more than it would have otherwise. That and the fact that, like, I'm just coming off that dopamine fast. Mm. And, like, I reacted to this movie, like, probably more so in a way that, like, a child would mm-hmm. because it was so over... I I wasn't callous. Like, I was very soft and very sensitive. Like, I cried multiple mm-hmm. times in this movie. Yeah, me too. Like, what What were your cries? So, um, particularly, like, because of some of the stuff that I've talked about in the nature, like, <laughs> right at the start, it's hilarious. Like, let the, the mother, like, letting go of oh. the, the baby and then, like... Um, you know the pharaoh mama picking yeah picking him up and like damn that's some it's like this i guess the strong femininity stuff probably at the very very start yeah 
Um, I'm trying to think later on in it as well. I actually cried to like close the loop. I cried just at the a really random bit. It's just whenever they got to the other side of the Red Sea mm. and Miriam just gives Moses this look. Yeah. It's just that look and it just got me. And I think he says thank you or something, but it's very like underplayed that moment. Yeah. But there was something about it where I was like, oh my word. Like, <laughs> like Miriam did it. Like this yeah. is, like, like without Miriam, Moses wouldn't have done it, you know? Yeah. And like Miriam wa- like bore the responsibility of being the, like older than him. And like literally like at a young age, like, like watching her baby brother in the Nile, like, and being afraid that like crocodiles were going to eat him and being happy that the princess found him. You know, like she just carried so much weight that like Moses didn't when he was young. Her faith is insane. Like- her faith, yeah. Like, she 